0: to completely Beatles, i'm ian boothby from the sneaky dragon podcast and i'm david dedrick from exactly the same podcast <laughs> as we go over every week we've run out of jokes on that <laughs> so sure. we're done on that uh, but thank you for joining us on Completely Beatles. If this is your first time listening to the show, what we do is—or even if it's not—it's the same intro. Generally, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at an entire album track by track. Yes. And the album we're doing today is Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Did I get that right, you Sergeant got, you Pepper's got that right.
1: Lonely Heart? I think you left out the uh, apostrophe.
0: I think I'm pluralizing things that shouldn't be pluralized and depluralizing things yeah. that should be. You all know what I'm talking about, right?
1: Sgt. Pepper, Lonely Heart Clubs, bands. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, that's right. That's with a the Z. Album. That's that's the two, way the kids have it three nowadays. Zs. That's right. That's right. Um, now we're finally at an album that I I listened to to death when mm-hmm. I was young. Yeah. And uh, we just heard a magical sound in the background. So. Okay. And anytime I've listened to an album in in whole before uh, doing this, that magical sound plays. It's mm-hmm. never played before. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, but my my personal story on this album is I bought this album for my sister who is a very mainstream music listener. Yes. And she was a teenage girl. And I went, you know what? Uh, this is the most one of the most popular albums of mm-hmm. all time. She's very mainstream. Yeah. She listens to the top you know, uh, 40 uh, stations. Yeah. She, you know what? She's heard some of these songs. This is a safe bet. She got furious for me to get in this album. Is that right? This old album. It's she couldn't old... believe that I would get this for her. It was the source of a huge fight. And right. she went, you take it, and threw it at me. And I went, all right, I'll take it. So uh, I listened to this one quite a bit. Was it the record or the tape? It was the record. OK. OK. Wow. Um. Yeah, so it, it hurt more If it was it just a tape hurt. That would have been fine But she threw the whole album at me
1: Well for for me growing up With my friends Their generation Their parents And my parents Weren't Beatle fans They were An earlier generation They were Elvis Presley fans And so everyone in their col- Everyone in their collection Had You know There's main records They obviously had Herb Alpert records They mm-hmm. had a, an ABBA album Everyone's parents Everyone's parents had ABBA The
0: Herb Alpert one Was just for dad Liking the sexy cover That's With right. the lady And the whip cream That's right
1: and and you know they might have like a big album like say Simon Garfunkel's Bridge Over Triple Water.
0: You usually have Frank Sinatra's Every, uh, Come Fly With Me something or like something that. like that. Yeah.
1: But none of the parents that I that I my friend's parents had any Beatles albums except for one, and his stepfather was uh, British, and so he had um, he had the first collection, the blue or red. I can't remember which one was the first. I think the red one was the first one and you know those ones those collections wh- where they are looking over the that's uh, right it uses the please please me cover and right. then the later when they did for the get back album and uh and then they ha- and then he had sergeant pepper so I'm like you. I was very familiar with that album growing up because mm-hmm. that one was one you listened to a lot.
0: Now, do you think, like, uh, you've said that Revolver is your favorite album. Mm-hmm. Do you think that one... Now, if you're a Beatles fan, can you say that Sgt. Pepper is your favorite or do people just roll their eyes at that point and go, well, of course it is. Is it like Star Wars where you have to say, I like the Empire Strikes Back the best? You can't just yeah. go, I like Star Wars best. Yeah, yeah. Is it just a little
1: too if you on say, the I, nose? If you say, I like Star Wars best and someone will always go, do you mean A New Hope? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Star Wars, buddy. Um, when it first came out, it was Star Wars. It might, right. it could be. And I think, you know, I think often with bands, like I think Sgt. Pepper, more than any of their Beatle album suffers from. Uh, us having heard it so much and it being so o- praised, I'm not going to say overpraised, but just so continuously praised that after a while you're kind of like, yes, we know it's a great album, but have you heard Revolver or have you heard Rubber Soul or right. what do you think of the White Album? Like, come on, there's lots of other albums besides this one album that everyone's going goo goo over. Like, now, why
0: was this one, why did this one, like, just hit? Why was this one the one that everyone plays too much? Well, I think that not too much, but plays (laughs) so much that you have to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. It becomes
1: wallpaper. Yeah, yeah. And but I think the reason it became wallpaper it was because it was such a perfect album that came out. It just encapsulated. Yeah, it encapsulated the moment. Not that it came at the right time. It just encapsulated the moment. It was just part of that sense that people had with the Beatles when Revolver came out, that the Beatles were psychically controlling the world. That's what it felt like. If you were a teenager in the '60s, you felt like the Beatles were anticipating every cultural thing that was happening. That in their albums, they were somehow controlling what was going on, and it just would it would have felt so weird that how much they anticipated things, like whether it was you know the craze for Eastern religions and you know that sort of thing coming about. You know they were well ahead of that. You know, putting the sitar on 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 a rubber sole mm. was well in advance of people's interest in in you know new age spiritualism or orientalism or whatever you call it at the t- at the time. You know, people looking at the Maharishi or or traveling to India. I mean, a lot of that came from the Beatles, but a lot of it sprung up parallel to them as well. You know, and they were just so, such great magpies, and so great at, you know, there's that scene in Watchmen where Ozymandias is sitting in his room Watchmen, for left, the graphic novel, the graphic also the movie, I guess, yeah. yeah. Sitting in that room with televisions, and all it's right. just like taking in the world, And or Sherlock Holmes in the new elementary series, where he constantly has TVs on all the time, and he's <laughs> taking in all this information. The Beatles did that constantly. Like Their whole life was surrounded by TVs were left on all the time. Wherever they were, they had TVs on. They had music playing at the same time. There's books and they magazines open. They were doing open. what people
0: do now, yeah. which is you watch television while you're on your iPhone, yeah. and then you've got uh, something else next to you, and you're sure. reading a book or doing something else. That's right.
1: So, they're taking in all this information, even just subconsciously taking it in. And it came out in their art, you know. And so, it felt like, you know, there's this incredibly subconscious, conscious, you know, happenstance, luck, all these sort of things that all kind of were came together in this you know kind of
0: nexus well you say you say you say magpies and i I like the idea of mag but magpies just repeat uh but like Mm. yeah and i was going to use sponge but a sponge doesn't do anything (laughs) except do the same thing as well i can't think of the correct animal to use but like i could see how someone if you're the most popular thing that's out there if you are sliced bread Mm -hmm. like i could see how they could just want to just be more like themselves yeah and keep repeating what they're doing is like this is successful we don't want to mess with this Mm. but instead yeah they kept absorbing and changing yeah. constantly, which was uh, which was a bold choice, and and something I think to Con- be respected. constantly
1: challenge themselves, and I think we could talk did a little n- if
0: anyone could coast, yeah. That's know, right. Be them.
1: That's right, and we can talk about when we talk about the context of the album. We can talk about that more too. Like maybe we should just move right into
0: that. If you all want. all right. Well, just I know kind of Dave's talk. favorite part of the show is context. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question that might start the context. Sure, sure. I know you've got Dave comes in. I always think like, oh, Dave brought a Bible with him uh, to swear on during yeah. the show to prove his prove facts are I'm, true. Yeah. But that it's just the facts. I would it's never that swear thick. that. I would never swear that. There are phone books that are less thick than what Dave brought in. <laughs> Settle down is what we're saying, everybody. Now. Uh, this is a concept album. The idea of a rock and roll concept album—had mm-hmm. that been done before at this point?
1: Not really, and I would I would dispute it as being a true concept album. Oh, okay, because well, we can talk about it again. Let's let's go into the context, and this it'll come out as we as we as we talk about the All album. All right, okay? very good. So I'd rather it came out organically.
0: As and we, by as organically, we you mean how you wrote it down beforehand, <laughs> which is kind of the uh, the opposite of organic, isn't it? Like a sponge. Uh, sponge is organic, that's true, unless it's a fake sponge. All right, please continue, sir. So,
1: well, because I think, when you think of the Beatles, I mean, we know that they worked hard, and they were constantly, you know, whether they were doing TV shows, radio, albums, movies, touring, their lives were busy, you know, mm-hmm. so, but this was a particularly, it seemed to them, I think they were kind of reaching the point where it was just like getting too much, like... You know, two days after they finish Revolver, okay, they just do this great album. I mean, they think it's great. They just finish this fantastic okay, album. So they're
0: happy with what they've They're done. as
1: happy as anything. Two days later, they're on the road again. They're in Germany doing what? Performing.
0: Oh, okay. I thought that. All right. So they were still. Uh, they were oh, still, yeah. Still uh, touring at yeah. this point. Okay. Yeah,
1: and in fact, I was so fascinated by the tour that I actually I wrote down. I'm going to give you the dates for the tour Please and where do. they went. So okay, so Wednesday, June 22nd. That's when they finished with their album. I mean, they were so involved with it. What
0: year is this? We're done.
1: Sixty-six. Gotcha. They attended the they attended the mix sessions for the first time. They attended the mono mix sessions. They were there, you know, looking after all the sounds that they wanted, making sure everything, all the songs sounded exactly the way they wanted them. On the twenty fourth, Friday, they're in Munich. They played two shows. The twenty fifth, they're in Essen. They played two shows. They on the twenty sixth, they were in Hamburg. They played two shows. They also went for a tour of the Reaper Bond and kind of visited old places and visited friends. June 27th, they flew back to London, stayed for two hours, then flew to Japan. Okay. But there was a huge typhoon that forced a plane to lay over in Anchorage, Alaska.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Okay. So you're on your way to Japan yeah. from England. Yeah. You detour to Alaska. Yeah, that's the closest place. You, I guess. I guess. All yeah. Right. You're not going to well, stop because you would be going
1: because you'd be flying up over the Canadian Shield in, oh, the, in yeah, the jet yeah, yeah, stream, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: Wow, that seems a hell of a detour.
1: So then they were there
0: for uh, uh, nine hours. Okay, how thrilling is that? If you're at Anchorage, Alaska, yeah. and you're at the airport and you're whatever doing whatever mm-hmm. you're doing at Anchorage, mm-hmm. Alaska, and you're like, and then oh, there's the Beatles.
1: Well, they, of course, it was supposed to be hush-hush, but somehow people found out about it. And yeah, of course you know, they it's did. It's they're... Anchorage,
0: Alaska. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> What are you right. going to do? Beatles Some are here. The you're not going to like, yeah. oh, no, what else is going on? Well, a polar bear is attacking the village.
1: So they, so they, they arrived at uh, Tokyo at 3.40 in the morning on the tw- 30th. Okay. The same day, they played uh, at the Budokan. They played their first series of shows there, which was a bit of a cold shower for them because at this point, they were doing no new songs. Their set list was like this old thing they just dragged out. They didn't even rehearse before they left. Mm-hmm. They just dragged a bunch of songs out of Mothballs. And I'm sorry, I didn't write down all the songs, so I can't tell you. Yeah, that's all right. But they're, they just did like a half an hour set. They didn't rehearse it. Then they end up in uh, Japan, and they're playing in front of this silent audience that's politely listening to them. Hack it out. Now, are
0: these monks? What's, what's no, going on? No, no, this on? is the,
1: the Japanese audience, but they did not scream or yell. They just sat there and politely listened to you play.
0: Do they clap at the end?
1: I think so. Probably in unison, just to make it creepier.
0: <laughs> one loud clap. One loud clap. Just that once, would be, yeah. Once. Actually, you know what it is? It's the sound of one hand clapping. That's right. And they go like, I get it, but still. <laughs> mm. Creepy. Yeah.
1: And so, yeah, it was, a real, it was a real shocker for them to actually hear what they sounded like <laughs> at this point. Because, like I said, they hadn't rehearsed. They were just so used well, to
0: going in and just quickly... Do you know what I love about that is the idea that, you know, their complaint later was, we couldn't hear ourselves. Mm-hmm. We can't perform because no one can hear us and we can't hear, yeah. you know. And it's like, oh, all right, uh, here's your wish granted, <laughs> says Rod Serling, standing off to the side. Yeah. And then, oh, no, okay. <laughs> <It's>
1: just... <laughs> so they, they were there for five days. <laughs> And then they went to the Philippines. They were in Manila.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They did two shows. And this is when, this is a huge thing. They offended Imelda Marcos. They didn't mean to. Did they do a song about shoes? They <laughs> having too many shoes? Yeah. No. <laughs> they, um,
0: they, they did a the cover of These Boots Are Made for Walking. Made for Walking. did it really really yeah. bother?
1: <laughs> no, what happened is she invited them to uh-huh. some sort of like, to some sort of personal audience with her. And she had like her own kids there and a hundred other children who were kind of handpicked to see the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Beatles were exhausted. They just—they've been touring, so they're kind of like, "No, we don't want to do it." It was in. Oh, and the other thing was, it was two hours before their show started, and they or an hour before their show started. And usually, they would go to the stadium or whatever or the, arena, the place they're playing two hours before the show to do their um, sound check, sound check, and everything, get yeah. get into the show. And so she was terribly offended. So when the next day they're trying to leave the airport. They, or I don't even know if they got out of the air... They just got manhandled. When they got, like Mar- Marcos thugs came to the airport and were pushing around and shoving them. Uh, I think uh, one of the... Like Neil Aspinall or Mella, Evans, got trampled. And all stuff. And then when they actually got onto the plane, finally, then they were told they couldn't leave because, oh, strangely enough, your papers that you follow when you landed are, are missing. So there's no evidence that you came here. So your, all your immigration papers are wrong. So then they had to sit on the tarmac for two hours. And Tony Barrow and Neil Aspinall had to go back inside you know, probably not in the happiest state of mind having to go back in there. yeah. And now they're going back in the gate, and they had to go through all this paperwork, and then finally they were allowed to leave.
0: You know what I've heard? After After they left. Please. I'm just going to say really quickly, I've heard a remarkable amount of stories of of people who go to tour in countries, uh, annoy in some way someone, and then the airport is a nightmare (laughs) on the way back. Yeah. I've heard this over and over again, so, okay. Yeah. Well,
1: of course, you know, when you're in a state run by a dictator, pretty much they can so but it was after they left then Marcos issued a statement saying it was an accident mm. you know they the Beatles didn't mean to offend mm. f- offend right. Melda, blah 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 you know but of course yeah. this was issued after they'd gotten she, she took shit, the title of the album
0: room. Rubber Soul incorrectly she thought it was about Rubber Soul mm-hmm. shoes and she hates those she cannot stand them so it all makes sense so then they came she, back to it, otherwise she was a really nice lady oh, right everyone quite, loves her sure. well the shoe salesman yeah maybe maybe the lesson is don't go to countries with <laughs> dictators maybe that's the lesson learned
1: so uh, then they came back to to England and had a, a sort of a, a month off. Of course, still doing television, radio, and so. But a like bit that. of a break. A bit of a break. That's when John made his famous uh, "The Beatles are bigger than Jesus" statement, that okay. like, so riled up America. Mm-hmm. So it was a perfect time for them to go to America.
0: Now, it, did it rile up England? No, because they don't care about that stuff. Well, it was taken. It was taken
1: in context because it was part of a large article okay. where he was talking about things, and what he was saying was, I mean, like he said in his apology, I could have said television. I could have said. Whatever. What he meant was, you know, pop culture has become larger than organized religion. Mm-hmm. Organized religion will shrink and disappear, which is, you know, it's partly true. I mean, it has majorly disappeared since that time period. He wasn't wrong. I mean, in other ways, disorganized religion has, you know, <laughs> okay. risen. All in right. terms okay. of, like, the old staid, you know, Anglican culture that he's referring to, that's, you know, gone and away. Okay. Know? Yes, it's still popular, but in a different way than what, you know, he he's... So he offended it, you know. But in in America, all they saw was this one quote: "The Beatles are bigger than Jesus." <laughs> That's all they saw. They didn't see the whole article, mm-hmm. um, and so they had this completely distorted view of what he was saying. And it sparked off this giant controversy, lots of Beatle burnings, and all this, you know, stuff like that. Like, there's a picture of George while he's making Sergeant Pepper wearing a stamp of the Beatles sweatshirt.
0: Yep. Now, was yeah. did this hurt their popularity or help their popularity?
1: It hurt their popularity. It did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It definitely, it definitely put a pall on, on the tour. And in fact, very, very few of the shows, or I shouldn't say very few, but many of the shows weren't sellouts. Okay. Unlike the last time they'd come, the year before, when everything they did sold out in two hours and they sold out at Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium did not sell out on this tour.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: So it was, yeah. They, so here's the tour. It starts on Friday the August 12th. August the 12th, Chicago, two shows. 13th, Detroit, two shows. The 14th, Cleveland, one show. Fifteenth Washington D.C. one show, Philadelphia one show. From Philadelphia to Toronto for mm-hmm. two shows. From Toronto to Boston for one show. From Boston to Memphis. That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> for two shows. This is where the famous firecracker incident was.
0: I don't know the famous okay. firecracker incident. Please.
1: There was a death threat against them. They were. The police were called and said that there, someone was going to shoot the Beatles while they're on stage. Right. Well, while they're performing, some some uh, joker threw a firecracker on stage. And so there's this giant bang, and all the Beatles looked at each other like, "Who was shot?" You know. So, you know, they're just performing this, you know, atmosphere of fear. They're exhausted. They're going in this weird zigzag pattern across America. I have no idea what, because uh, from Memphis to Cincinnati, oh, and this is because this was the 21st. Because the show on the 20th was rained out in Cincinnati. So on the 21st, they had to perform in Cincinnati at 3:30, then go 341 miles to St. Louis perform at
0: 8 30 now how are they getting there by plane or by, by plane uh, yeah oh okay yeah
1: then they went from uh cincinnati st louis to new york for one show then they went to la for
0: a layover in the 24th went from new york to la yeah did, did the person they didn't, they didn't perform in la okay did the person who booked this tour know how america looked <laughs> i think they were just trying to fill in
1: wherever they could by this point because i don't because like i say i think that you know there's like so there's hardly any southern dates Right. So before they would have performed more across the South, but that gotcha. that got all probably got canceled. So that probably made them have to shift a lot of the shows around in mm-hmm. a different way. So yeah, they went to L.A. and then on the 25th they flew from L.A. to Seattle and played two shows. They went back down to L.A. to do one show at Dodger Stadium, and then they did their final show August 29th at San Francisco at Candlestick Park, and they just did one show there, and that was the final show they did. And I, I think even the Beatles knew it was going to be their final show. Um, Why is that? Well, John had like he was taking pictures on stage of them performing, taking pictures of himself, doing selfies on stage, mm-hmm. taking pictures of. He invented band. the selfie. He invented the selfie, um, and and Paul same thing. He had and he had Tony Barrow, their press officer, tape the show, and so because they did one extra song, they did um, they did uh, Long Tall Sally. It actually went past the half hour cassette that he had, so it cuts off <laughs> the end of the show. But um, yeah, after the show, Harrison quit the band. Like he said, that's it. I'm done. I'm no longer a Beatle. Okay, and that's how he felt at that at that moment. He was done. So basically, Epstein had to promise that there would be no more touring, and and then this kind of the claim that Revolver got kind of and then having a layoff kind of brought him back around. He kind of changed his tune, but up to that point, he was done. Like he was ready to just to, to pack it in there, and he because he just wasn't enjoying it anymore. There was no enjoyment in what they were doing. So, like I say, Epstein had to say, we you know, no more touring. No more. So then they're just going to be recording artists.
0: They weren't going to be performing artists anymore. So Now, was this announced or was this just something they it, knew themselves? I think it was announced. I think it was. I think people
1: knew. And I think people thought the Beatles were going to break up because mm. there was a long period. The Beatles basically took four months off. Okay. Um, John Lennon did How I Won the War, acted in the film How I Won the War. John Lennon or Paul McCartney did the, the soundtrack to The Family Way. With uh, George Martin, um, did I say with? And George went to India to study with Ravi Shankar, and then Ringo, being Ringo, he stayed at home and ring-goed. hung around with his family. He Ringoed. He hung around with his family and and had fun. And like I was saying, um, like the Beatles were at this point when Revolver came out. You know, they were really starting to be seen as some sort of like prophets of the new age, or whatever. You know, like this is kind of more than what they were. Like this is this real anticipation. So, you know. The fact that when they started to talk about doing this new album, everyone was so excited at the idea there's gonna be a new Beatles album. Like like they really I mean, the only way they could out outdo the 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 hype was to outdo themselves. You know what I mean? And so the other thing is is that there were at this point there was a couple major shifts in the music industry itself. You know, there was there was competition between the bands. It was friendly, but super intense competition between all these groups. You know, between the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Kinks. And there's all these bands that just were getting better and better. You know, it wasn't like they were did one great album and then they
0: got tired and put out crap. Just a quick question. Do, they, uh, do the Kinks still perform together now? Uh, they're talking about it, but they haven't for a while there. Okay. Isn't it amazing that all those bands... If you were to say to all those bands back then, hey, in the year uh, 2014 you're all in some capacity going to be performing still yeah. except for except for you guys obviously yeah, yeah that, that's that's pretty wild
1: yeah it is interesting but what this did was it created a new a new mus- new musical figure it created like the rock artist or the you know you weren't you were no longer a pop artist you're no longer uh, a, an artist who was signed by a record label and given an A&R man an artist and repertoire man mm-hmm. who chose songs for you and you performed songs by other writers and um, you know, and you, you had maybe a one year. Uh, lifespan to yeah. your career before you're crazy, whatever, you know... Yeah, the fad whether Yeah, whether, the fad, whether you're a Chubby Checker or Johnny Ray or whoever, you just have this quick turnaround. you get thrown into the machine, you get chewed up by the machine and just spat at the other and end instead, and instead,
0: 45 years later, mm-hmm. the majority of these bands can still tour and yeah. tour to substantial audiences. Yeah. That's, uh, that's remarkable.
1: Because of what they created, though. Yeah. It's not just because, you know... And the impact they had. The impact they had. I mean, the Friendly Competition had its cost, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean you know, Pet Sounds, which was a major influence on Sgt. Pepper, you know, um, was, a, was a response to the Beatles' Rubber Soul. Brian Wilson heard that. He heard the American version. He thought, this is a brilliant folk rock album. I want to do something that's kind of has this sort of folk rock element to it as well. And, you know, and then when he heard Revolver, he's like, okay, I've got to outdo Revolver. <laughs> you know, and the Beatles are the same way. They heard Pet Sounds and they're like, I've got to outdo Pet Sounds. That's this great. is brilliant. The problem was for Brian Wilson, who was working by himself not in a gang situation like the beatles it was much harder for him to push boundaries because he's pushing not only boundaries he's pushing against bandmates he's pushing against the record companies pushing against all these people that the the beatles had as a gang they could push against these things you know what i mean and plus they had george martin there as as their guide you know someone who was working with them not against them not saying are you sure you want to do this yeah. you know you sure you want to bring in a big orchestra and just have them do a a big orchestral you know orgasm is that what you really want like you know he didn't say that he said okay Let's make it work, you know, And whereas Wilson was working against that. So for him, and he was doing Smile, we can talk about Smile maybe at a different time. I'd love to do a show about Smile, but, you know, he just became mired down in it, partly because of self-confidence issues, partly because of inter-band issues, and partly just mental issues. He yeah. started from drugs and, and he started developing schizophrenia and fell apart. You know, but it wasn't just him. Bob Dylan, you know, he was totally drugged out. He'd been touring for two years. Yeah. He'd done Bob Dylan still performs. <laughs> yeah, but he'd done two huge <laughs> albums. But I mean, I would argue that, he, you know, after his motorcycle accident, which whether it was real or not, you know, he used it an excuse to take a year off. Yeah. And that was a real career staller. It was hard for him to pick up after that happened. You know, he never had the same impetus either as a writer or performer, you know, to where he was kind of the cultural voice besides the Beatles after... After the motorcycle incident, he was kind of withdrew into Woodstock. No one, you know, he's still important, but not as important, you know.
0: I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. More people don't go crazy from fame, frankly, yeah, and that kind of thing. I, I mean, we're not. There's nothing. There's nothing to prepare us for that, no. you know, biologically to no. have millions of people paying attention to you. I mean, that that doesn't seem right no, ever. it Doesn't. And then, which is why I'm I'm happy with the audience we have for this show. That's just the right amount that we won't go crazy. <laughs> Uh, you know, well, okay. Oh, you want more people yeah, listening? Okay, all right. Everyone tell one friend about this show, but not more than that, <laughs> or so Dave on. will go nuts. And so on. Okay. So the
1: <laughs> other thing, so we kind of mentioned it, like the Beatles started to see themselves as recording artists, not as performing artists, like doing Revolver, right. where, you know, they really couldn't reproduce the sounds they created for Revolver on stage. They didn't do any new songs when they did their last their final tour from Revolver because they couldn't. There's just no way for them to reproduce that kind of complicated performance on stage. And so for them, it was the songs became the goal, you know, to create these perfect little jewels, each one its own little thing. Mm -hmm. And so when we see on Sgt. Pepper, each song has its own kind of setting that it sits in, you know, and each one's individually created. So whereas when they're doing doing the early part of the career, they had their Beatlemania sound, and every song had had the Beatlemania sound, or when they were doing Rubber Soul and Help, and it had that kind of 12-string folky kind of sound, and you could recognize that period... You know, for Sgt. Pepper, there's no identifiable sound. There's no sound where you go, oh, there's the Beatles." I mean, you know the Sgt. Pepper songs, but you don't say, you know, oh, that's the sound of 67, you know. Having a bunch of cut-up organ sounds in a song, that's the sound of the Beatles from... No, that's one song. You know, having a big orchestral climax, that's the sound of the Beatles, that's one song. (laughs) So there's no, you know, it's a different kind of attitude. The other thing is, the other change was the change from 45 to the long player. So... You know, as it became more serious, as artists started to explore songs and songcraft and started wanting to write about meaningful things and about in a meaningful way, the single, which is kind of a snapshot, wasn't big enough for them anymore. You know, it didn't couldn't hold all their ideas. So the album became the new form of of you know. So Pet Sounds, Revolver, these are albums. You know, and Sgt. Pepper is the ultimate of that. The You know, it's the. You don't
0: say it's a concept album. It's just an album. It's just an album. It holds together. It's not a. It's not a collection of singles.
1: It's not just that. It's how often do people pull songs off *Sergeant Pepper* and put them on a mixtape? Not very often. It's because those songs sit in a particular way and relate to each other in a particular way. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's hard to separate them. There's very rare that you're gonna, you know, you you'll you'll have *Paperback Writer* on a mixtape. You'll have, you'll have *Hey Jude*. You'll have, um, you know. I don't know, drive my car. Those are kind of songs that you can take and you can put here and there. But *Sgt. Pepper* doesn't—it doesn't seem to work the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like I say, they had their four-month break. They came back together, but because of their importance to to EMI, and because e- EMI owned *Abbey Road*, the Beatles paid no ro- no studio costs. When they like most times when bands record, the studio costs are deducted from their royalties. Okay. So if you spend hundred thousand dollars in the studio. You owe $100,000 to the record company. Your album has to make $100,000 to pay off the studio costs. The Beatles didn't have that. All those costs were absorbed by EMI because they own the studio. It didn't cost them any extra money for the Beatles to do it. Plus, they were the Beatles. So why would you want to get in their way? They had this great thing happening, this giant golden goose. Why would you, you know, kill the golden goose?
0: (laughs) I was thinking cash cow, but it's all on the money farm. So sure. (laughs) So the other thing is you
1: said uh, Sgt. Pepper is a concept album. They had a concept for the album. The original concept for the album was a autograph, it was going to be like an autobiographical album looking back at their Liverpool childhood. All right. That was the original concept because they became fascinated with this idea when they did, uh, in my life. And when they started doing that, they started writing down all like the place names and the interesting sort of places in Liverpool and sort of kind of collating this idea of, of exploring, exploring Liverpool from this nostalgic viewpoint. And so. That that was what they you know that was one thing that they wanted to do. So, also obviously the idea of bringing even more new new instruments, new instrumentation, new ideas into this album, you know, to make it even bigger and better than Revolver. I mean that was their goal, and to make it better than Pet Sounds. Pet yeah. Sounds was played constantly in the studio to the engineers and George Martin because the Beatles wanted them to understand what they wanted this album to sound like. So
0: well, I see a lot of stuff about growing up in this, and uh, you know, so I could see how so, uh, that would reflect from the original concept. You know, and then going all the way to when I'm 64. Like it's a, it's a real there's real elements of of growing up, you know, in this and uh, what's it what's it like to age and change. Mm-hmm. So I could I could see you know how that uh, how that would have gone. But what I what I've just heard from you know watching the little documentary that comes okay. with this, yeah, uh, was uh, was them saying that uh, they wanted to create a new band to perform as, and they created this new band mm-hmm. and sort of performed in that headspace. Okay, of,
1: that's. That's an interesting idea. But the thing is, is, they started recording the album in November of 1966. Okay. Sgt. Pepper, the song, doesn't appear until February the 1st. So the, al- the idea, there's three months they're working in without any concept of it being Sgt. Pepper. Okay. You know, so um, Sgt. Pepper was an idea that came later that songs kind of dovetailed into but it wasn't necessarily the overarching theme to the album okay in the in a real sense of a concept album
0: because it's a bit of a trick you can play as an artist sometimes which is you know if you can't like as a writer, if I can't write something, I could think uh, I'm Dave. What would Dave write? And mm-hmm. then I could write something in your style that yeah. I would never write on my own. Yeah. But I can, but I can sort of ape your style or, or write it in another head. So it's almost like when you're dreaming and you're in a dream and someone says something in a dream, you go, "That's brilliant. I wish I thought of that." And you're like, "Wait, I guess I did, but I couldn't. Yeah. Unless I project myself into that sort of thing." And you know, when I was hearing them say that, it's like, "Yeah, these are probably some songs you couldn't write as yourselves, but you can write it as as this other band." Yeah. Could be, I and
1: maybe time not timeline. Yeah, in the timeline, it's hard to you know I because actually John wasn't that keen on the idea compared to to, to Paul. Mm-hmm. But at that point, John was Paul. Know,
0: Paul seems more of a musical theater guy. He seems more <laughs> yeah. He'd be happy on the Broadway stage, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and yeah. this is kind of a Broadway stage idea or sure. West End if you're going to go with England.
1: So we're going to get a little controversial here because I know we've we're going to say
0: we're bigger than Buddha
1: because we've. <laughs> We're because we've um, we said we're going to be chronological,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: we're going to do album by album. We're actually going to go a little out of album by album here because we're going to start with the singles Starberry Fields," "Penny Lane," okay. which I know are on Magical Mystery Tour, the American version, which All comes right. after Sgt. Pepper. But in terms of cr- chronological release, they came out before the album, and I think that they they uh, you know they kind of reflect on what's going to come with Sgt. Pepper. Sar- Starberry Fields" was the very first song they started working on when they started the new album. They came back from all their various places. they George's back from India. Ringo's back from Esher. John's back from Spain, wherever he was. Paul comes back from wherever he traveled as well, Kenya or something. They all come back. They all have mustaches. <laughs> and which actually, George started because he wanted to not be recognized in India. But uh, they all come back and now they're ready to record this album. The first one they do is start the Strawberry Fields.
0: All right. All their voices are muffled by the mustaches. <laughs> They've got to adjust the microphones for that.
1: That's right. They had to put a special filter on.
0: Now do you find Strawberry Feel and uh, Brilliant? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. End end of uh, end of discussion. <laughs> it's all going to be like that. Greatest song ever. Uh, do you find Strawberry Feel and Penny Lane to be uh, very similar songs? Well, Yes,
1: in the sense that they were both from the same concept the childhood concept yeah, so, they're yeah. both that yeah. yeah
0: like are these are when you're saying like the original idea for the album was childhood mm-hmm. uh, like to me when you're set when you're saying that I mean I, I think one of the themes of the album is you know is is growing becoming an adult and then into being an old man. This mm-hmm. seems both of these are the you know reflections on childhood so the, it, I, when you're saying do this chronologically, this does seem thematically to be a good place to start.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, because, well, it it isn't, it is, well, we can talk about it.
0: We are going to talk about it. We are going to talk
1: about it. So, do you know there is an actual strawberry fields? I think I heard that. It's, now, there's two different things that it could be. One is it was right. supposed to be a salvation army orphanage in uh Wilton where John and Paul Oh, Okay, up.
0: did not hear that. Or okay. it
1: was a girls reform school.
0: Okay, all right. I so, but it had
1: like a big grounds where they all played as children. They would go in there and romp around in in, in the the woods and stuff like that. And so that, you know, that kind of leads that obviously the kind of over the childhood part of it. But Lennon who wrote the song when he was doing the film and he was bored, he just started working on the song. It's more about It's still kind of continuing the ideas of like that he brings up in she said she said and stuff like that like that kind of sense of dislocation and loss of self that's mentioned in that song Mm -hmm. and so when he when he brought it in either he had like he'd done the demo of it but he was really uncertain how he wanted it to sound and the history of it which i think is kind of fascinating like it's was fifty five hours of recording the song. Wow! So it was a bit of a change from when you think of their first album. They so recorded. it was Strawberry Feels Forever. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Because he he was so uncertain of what he wanted. Of
0: course, yeah. So it's such a strong concept that how are you going to get it right? You're trying to trying to show what childhood was like. That's the thing, and like I said, you know, there's
1: the Beatles had no 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 necess- that didn't necessarily have a style anymore. So they weren't playing into a style. So when they did their first take say take one of the song which seemed like the best take and it was kept as a take and they overdubbed some things onto it mm-hmm. uh george playing slide guitar and stuff like that um you know that seemed okay we've got we've got a take of Strawberry fields forever time to move on let's do when i'm 64 that was the second song they started recording right. for this peter develop album. then john says you know what i'm not that happy with this version of the the song let's try it let's try it a different way so then they uh they tried it with the um, they tried it with the, the mellotron version, so which is the one we, we're more familiar with. The mellotron opens the song, has that kind of flute sound. Right. The original takes it was set to the brass setting, so it had a different sound. It sounded more like a, kind of. It says brass setting. It sounds more like reed instruments played in a very reedy way. Mm-hmm. If you listen to it, uh, that kind of synth sound. You know, so we talked about the mellotron before. But let's talk a little bit more about the Mellotron, because I know people love love to hear about the Mellotron. Oh, yeah. We get the a lot greatest, of letters about the Mellotron. Yeah, people, <laughs> Mellotron! And Mellotron Legacy. Um, they, I made that joke on the website, but I thought I'd throw it in. Um, sure,
0: please do. It's your joke. That's my
1: joke. <laughs> Trademarked. So, the Mellotron, okay, in a, in the United States, there was this guy named Harry Chamberlain, and he invented this, uh, kind of like a early sampler called the, cha- the Chamberlain. He called it after himself, the Chamberlain. And the idea of it was it played recorded tapes when you pressed on a key. That's right. The tape would go down and go against the the, the play, playback head, and yep. it would record. It would play a little bit of this this song. And so the much key Looped, you played. Loop Yeah, sound, yeah there were right. loop sounds. That's right. Okay. And so uh, the sales rep for Chamberlain, this guy named Bill Franson, went to England because they were looking for um, tape head manufacturers is what they wanted to find there. But while he was there, he met up with some other guys, and they decided to start their own venture. And they called their company uh, Mellotronics. Okay. And so they and they c- cutting Chamberlain. Sounds
0: like out, the most mellow electronics uh, cutting uh, organization yeah, ever. Taking
1: Chamberlain's idea and cutting them out, but they made some improvements on it to be to be fair. And so they started to manufacture this copy of it called the Mellotron, and that started in '63. And then they made changes to that, and so that was the Mellotron Mark II, which is the one that uh, John Lennon had. And what was strange about it is if you look at it, it has two keyboards. The one on one side plays like individual. Notes of whatever. So you make a selection. You want the flute setting. You set, make, make the selections and it plays the flute. Do-do-do-do-do. And then the other side would play kind of samples of, of kind of either rhythm section. So you have like drum beats playing by pressing down on different keys, or you could have like strings, you know, washes of strings playing on the, on the left hand side. So it depended on what side you were playing, what you got. And so for instance, uh, for the take one, you, to set it to brass setting, what you did was, which was uh, the brass setting was a close mic trumpet, trombone, and saxophone. They were all recorded. They went into a studio, booked time, hired people to come in and right. just play through all the notes and make make recordings of all these. So you set the Mellotron to station two and you choose track B, and then you would get the brass setting. So that's what they started with. And then when they when they got on to more takes, they changed the setting to the flute setting, which obviously was a great idea because it's so brilliantly beautiful. And then so they recorded it that version. Take six, also known as take seven, because it was mixed down. Okay. So whenever they did a mix, uh, did a mix reduction. So say you had four tracks that were full, you record those four tracks onto another four-track recorder, onto one track. Okay. And then you have three more tracks that you can add stuff to. So you can add vocals or whatever to it. So that four-track take six is reduced to w- the next track or next take seven. So wow. Take okay. Six, t- all right. That's how it would work. Because it's kind of confusing when the takes, how the takes work and stuff like that. So they had take seven. Done. In the can. Added some stuff to it. All finished. Perfect. We're done. Let's move on. Walk away. Let's walk away from this. Have a cup of tea. Let's start something new. Anyone
0: has to pee. <laughs> let's all come on and do the next thing.
1: Then but. a week later, John comes, up, goes up to George Martin and says, I'm still not happy with what we have. <laughs> so what he decided, what he wanted to have was a trumpet and cello version, like a string version with brass in it, like real brass. And so they had to lead on a new backing track, which interestingly enough, neither Martin nor Jeff Emmerich were at this session. Uh, Jeff Emmerich being the, the lead, the head engineer, head you know, sound engineer. Because uh, they had um, pre- tickets for the premiere of Cliff Richard's film, Finders Keepers. So they were at that premiere.
0: It's had stuff to do. Well, they got
1: to do it. They were friends with him. And then so uh, while they were gone, the the mice played. And so they recorded like backward cymbals and they did all this stuff <laughs> like that. And then uh, so they had this take all, you know, they had the take done, the the, the real take. And then so, of course, just to confuse everyone. Th- so then they... Um, What did they do then? Oh yeah, then that take was mixed down to take twenty-five, and then Ringo overdubbed his percussion and drums, and George added the Sir Mandel, which is the this. um, It's called the Sir Mandel, or it's called the Sword Mandel. Or okay. if you prefer the Sfor-Mandel or the Swarmandel. I don't know. I've seen okay. it in all different ways. But anyway. It's called the Mandel
0: and then the Queen knighted it. It
1: became the Sir Mandel. Let's just call it what it is, which is a zither. Oh, very that's good. What it was. It's Why are we zithering around? Let's it's just basically call it a, a zither, table right. harp. Yeah. So that's that part. You know, in the songs where it has that in between kind of verses when does that little kind of descending. Gotcha. It sounds almost like a harp. That's a Zermandel. Um, so all those were added, including, um, and then, then, the four trumpets and the three three cellos were, were scored and added, and then so that was take twenty six, reduced right. down to take twenty six, and then John recorded his vocals onto that, and that's when he added for no reason, only John knows why. He started making little voices and saying cranberry sauce, cranberry sauce, which became in the ears of people in America, "I buried Paul," oh. which is one of the clues. In quotes to the whole "Paul is dead" thing came from that, came from that uh, fact that I don't know. Did they not have cranberry sauce in the United States? Did they not recognize? Well, they they had Thanksgiving.
0: What did they uh, what did they have for Thanksgiving back then? Is that a new thing? I uh, don't know. I don't know the if the world have... of Ocean Spray. Is please, that... le-
1: please let us know, American listeners, if you have cranberry sauce with you.
0: Oh, but well, not just you. I know you currently do, but back in the day, yeah, did you? Yeah. Did you enjoy a cranberry sauce did out you, of a can?
1: Uh, the other interesting thing at the very end of the edit, uh, at the edit where Ringo's playing all his drums and stuff like that, going away, you can hear John say, um, "All right, calm down, Ringo." <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs>
0: well, I can. Uh, here, my assumption would be with the cr- like. It feels like this is definitely trying to capture what childhood was like. And when I listen to this, it sounds like someone lying in a field you know, with their eyes closed, and you're just like lying in a field, mm-hmm. and, every, and the world's going away and spinning. Okay, I know you're not, but if I didn't talk, <laughs> you're going to keep going for like six hours, buddy. I got to say something, or I don't get paid. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, it's lying in a field. Yeah. And getting that feeling. And so like I can see how he's got a he's got a vision of childhood in his head mm. and the music isn't quite right. It's close, okay. but it's not quite right. And yeah. it's like, what do you remember from childhood? I remember the taste of cranberry sauce. Just <laughs> throw that in there. Cranberry <laughs> sauce. And you're trying to it's like if you were to draw a picture of your childhood home, your first drawing would probably be your best drawing of it, but it would just not be right and it would drive you nuts how that doesn't feel like your home, even though it looks like your home. Yeah. So it feels like that was the that was the quest with this one was to get. Get that childhood feeling. Eventually, but he still it wasn't did. happy. Of course he wasn't. He still wasn't happy. I, I, I want the end of this story to be... And then they went, hey, fellas, we got a whole album to do and they had to do it all the next day. And so the whole album was jammed together. But please, okay, we're in the middle. Go.
1: There's, He went back to George again right. and said, you know what? I'm still not happy with what we Do you know what?
0: what? He's fussier than Jesus. <laughs> I'll say that much.
1: So he said, um, uh, what he wanted to do mm-hmm. was he wanted to combine take seven with take 26. So he wanted to combine the very early one they did with the Mellotron, the flute Mellotron, with this cello and and brass version. The problem was the tracks were recorded at different tempos and in different keys. (laughs) So he's saying, to, Is that all? he's saying to George Martin, so I just want you to join these together. And George Martin's like, well, well you know, there's a problem, John. And, the, the, you know, it's going to sound kind of weird yeah. if they're out of tune with each other. If and you also going put this track speeds.
0: from Pet Sounds in there as well. <laughs>
1: but it's a, n- a totally different album, John. But what they discovered was him and Emmerich sat down as if, if they could figure it away. And what they discovered was if they um, sped up, take seven, and then they slowed down, take 26, they were able to match the pitch between the two. And so they actually were the same key then. And so they were able to make the edit. And so it, So the edit...
0: That's stunning they were able to do that.
1: It's so lucky. It's not... Yeah, it's just absolute happenstance. It's so lucky. Yeah,
0: it's, it's lucky, but skill as well.
1: So, so Martin had to make two edits. So the first edit is at 55 seconds in, because he had to cut out part of um, the, the uh, take seven version. There's, a, you know, the, the lines, no one I think is in my tree. Okay. But I mean, it must be higher low. So he had to take out that part from that song. And then cut in part from a minute 18 that goes, let me take you down because I'm. And then, so when it says, let me take you down because I'm, that's when the edit occurs. And then the, the 26, the take 26 version is edited in. That's why, so let me take you down because I'm. And then you get that. And that's, that's where the edit takes place.
0: Okay. Was that, was that made to cover the edit? Or nope, is that just part of it. Yeah, that, that was just, just part of it. Okay. That worked, yeah. Wow, nice.
1: I know, it was amazing. Amazingly lucky for them. And yeah, 55 hours later, they had a song. (laughs) One song. One song. I mean, they're working on other stuff while this was going on, obviously. But because they're working on Penny Lane, they recorded When I'm 64 and basically finished that.
0: Well, I like how we talked off the top how uh, they could have just coasted. Uh, Apparently, they're not coasting. No, none of them are. They're working harder than anyone should. It's not just that. I mean, think about George Martin, too, saying,
1: okay, let's do it again. Okay, let's do it again. Not... You know, time to close the purse. but
0: No, but no, you've, I mean, you've had so much payoff. I don't mean just financial, yeah. but artistic payoff, mm. you know, from the others. I mean, I think like as, as someone who loved music, you'd, you'd want to like, where is yeah, this going to go? I'm sure. really curious. Let's, sure. let's do it. So you flip that uh, 45 over and you got yourself some uh, Penny Lane. You're like, hey, you like that nostalgic look of the past? <laughs> Hold it, buddy. We got one more for you. Sure. Penny
1: Lane. And, and another song that's very LSD. Mm-hmm. lsd Just in the sense that it's like a kaleidoscope it's winter and it's summer, you know, it's, it's raining and it's sunny. It's, there's no one time in the song. Well,
0: it also feels, I mean, you can definitely take, take that. I can also see it as your childhood memories get mixed up. Mm. You know, of just like you remember your hometown, sure. you remember it. It's winter, and then you remember it. It's summer, and it's all the same place. And yeah, you know, these are just your, these are just your memories. And when you were a kid, your neighborhood was your world, and this is this person's world. Yeah, at least at least for the for the uh, for the duration of the song.
1: And we were kind of talking during the Revolver one about the fact that British psychedelia was very based in childhood, and this is where it started. Mm-hmm. You know, Strawberry Fields was kind of the kickoff of, and Penny Lane were kind of the kickoff of that version of psychedelia, that kind of whimsical back to the past.
0: Well, not to talk too much about acid again, but something something that happens with acid is you look at things with fresh eyes. And like when you're a kid, you're scared of the monster in the closet. And when you're on acid, you're scared of the monster in the closet. Yeah. And they're both just as real to you as you were then. It, can, it does regress you a little bit to a lot of things that are uh, very childlike.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, when, uh, when they were, a lot of the songs on Sgt. Pepper were recorded um, without, like, normally they would record with, like, a backing track of bass, drums, guitar, whatever. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the songs on Sgt. Pepper were done differently. Like, Penny Lane, for instance, just starts with a piano track. That was the, the bass right there. One piano track played just by Paul, to which he added a second piano track that he ran through a vox amplifier and reverb to give it a slightly different sound. Okay. Then he did another piano track that he did at half speed, and then that was added to that. And then later on, George added another piano track to it, and then John added even more piano to it. So it's interesting that even a song that seems kind of simple, like Penny Lane, where you kind of go, oh, it's just a little them on a few instruments. very, It's actually very... Complex because they really wanted everything to sound different and to have some unique element to it, you know. And how much? So it was just the hard work just to get to that, you know. Perfect it's hard, sound. It,
0: yeah. You have to do a lot of work to make something sound simple. Yeah, but it really true. does. It, it's a nice contrast to the because if you had another uh, song that was so deep in sound and so many layers, it, it might it feels exhausting. It's a nice palate cleanser from the other one. I mean, it's good as its own song, but it's also something needed after that uh, after that first one. The other thing I think is interesting about... Is, sorry, is Penny Lane the B-side to this? Well, they, it was actually released as a double A-side. Ah, they so, did that again. Yeah, okay, yeah. the old double A-side.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting, like in England, I'm not, I'm sure in America, I'm pretty sure it made it to number one in the States, but in England, it was actually kept out of number one by Release Me by Engelbert Humperdinck. They just could not crack, that was one of those weird fluke songs that are in the charts for a year, and they just could not crack it, <laughs> you know. And actually, they didn't care. The Beatles weren't that bothered by... No, that why would you? By, yeah, they were kind of like, ah, whatever. It's fine.
0: Humperdinck isn't your competition. I think, Everything's fine. I think
1: John Lennon's coat was when he was told about it, he's like,
0: there's room for everything. Yep. So, yeah, this is. And that guy's got to live with that name. You know, that's why it was given to him. So, what? M- they just made up and yeah, Humperdinck was just, that yeah. was a get. Why? I think they just wanted to have like a weird name that would be striking for people. Wow. Okay. All yeah. right, everybody. I, I don't you, know his you, real you all name, have but... your favorite piece of trivia every episode. That one is mine. <laughs> I had no idea. Engelbert Humperdink was a name that was given. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like a character in a Beatles song. <laughs> I could see, like, in Yellow Submarine, Engelbert Humperdinck shows up. Um, what I think is curious
1: about this song, too, is that there's two different instrumental overdubs like of, of like, bringing in people to play outs- outside. That's the other thing interesting about this album is how many over, like, how many session musicians are brought in. Like, you go back to um, Revolver, you know, there's a few. For George's song, obviously, there's quite a few. And then... We have, like, uh, someone comes in and plays the French horn. Alan Siffel comes in and plays the French horn. And I can't remember anyone else coming in to do any... Oh, there's brass on on, I Gotta Get You Into My Life. Other than that, though, you know, it's mostly just the Beatles, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, and George Martin playing the instruments. This album is almost right away. It's just full of different instrumentation. Or even the single, it's a putative album at this point. And so the first overdub was four flutes, two trumpets, two piccolos, and a flugelhorn. Then three days later, two trumpets, <laughs> two oboes, two cor anglais, and then a double bass were used, which just seems strange. Why you would have them all at the same time? It's almost like they did once, and they're like, you know what? That's not enough. Time to bring in more.
0: I feel. I feel there's a guy out there who was playing the flugelhorn who was just going. I wish I was popular. And then he gets the call from the Beatles, and that's a great day in the flugelhorn guy's <laughs> that's life. Right.
1: So that, he was just there at the, the fox hunt playing. <laughs> that's right. Kelly Ho. <laughs> And then following on from Revolver is uh, the use of sound effects as well in this song. So you have like the fireman's bell Mm -hmm. and then... Uh, it's very, it's barely audible, but if you listen carefully, when he's talking about the banker on uh, the barber chair, like the, the, the double bass kind of plays this little weird thing to sort of indicate, I guess, him sitting down on a barber's chair. Oh, neat! So I, I don't know why they did that, but you know, just little little touches like that, just to have fun with it. Well, you know? as
0: you as you were saying before, George Martin had a history in comedy albums, right? Sure. So he's used to you know the sound effects yeah. and using all that kind of stuff to goose things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you can you can you can tell there's like there's a little bit of comedy album you know uh, polish. On uh, Beatles albums, and then the final touch that was basically thought to be
1: finished, but then Paul was at home one night and he was watching this uh, series on classical music, and he saw them performing the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Two, the box Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Two, mm-hmm. um, and he saw this trumpeter whose name was David Mason playing uh, the to Bach playing the trumpet, and he thought, "Oh, that would sound perfect on this song," and so uh, Mason was brought in. <laughs> And uh, what are you laughing at?
0: I'm just laughing at Mason, just, like, getting the call. Yeah.
1: Say, so what? Okay. So he, he apparently he brought in nine trumpets, I'm just smart.
0: A, I'm just going to say, sorry, this is my, it's, I'm just picturing Mason, and Mason sees himself. He's, he's on the TV, and he's yeah. just like, yeah, now things are going to start turning around for good old Mason. Ring, <laughs> ring. Excuse me. I've got to get the phone. Oh, hello, Paul. Well, certainly I'll be on your next album. <laughs> Click. Looks at his wife. See? And <laughs>
1: out the door. Out the door he went. He played on it again, actually. He was in the master orchestra for uh, A Day in the Life. Oh, nice. See, Ellen Civil was too, the guy who played the French horn on, on For No One. How about the flugel guy?
0: He might have been there. I don't know. I should have looked. <laughs> I'm worried about him. Are you really worried? I think he spent all his money. <laughs> this is the start of big things for old flugel. <laughs>
1: I spent all my money on bugles. <laughs> what? He's branching out. He just wanted rhyming instruments. Okay. Um, Luckily, there's only two. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> so then, uh, yeah, so I guess they said the trumpet that's played is called a B-flat piccolo trumpet. It's a very odd-looking trumpet, if you've ever seen one. It okay. has a really long horn on it, I guess, to get that the higher sound. Yeah, so what's... And the other funny thing about Penny Lane is, is that it, Paul liked it so much, he repeats it three more times on the album. He uses a very similar construct for fixing a hole, Yeah. getting better, and uh, a little help from my friends. All have similar, that triplet... You know, sound of, of uh, the piano to, to Penny Lane.
0: Well, are those all songs about uh, childhood? Nope. Okay. Then <laughs> then forget that link to those so three things. So then what happened? Yes. So they're in the middle.
1: They're two songs. Well, three songs are none. Got, when I'm 64, in the bag, we're cooking on this album. We're cooking on this album. Brian Epstein got cold feet. He felt like the Beatles were slipping. People were going to forget about them. Mm. Capital themselves, the record company in America, started demanding a single. Mm-hmm. So what they had to do was take two songs and give them away. So they took "Strawberry Fields" and "Penny Lane," and they were taken off of the album and turned into a single.
0: So they were originally supposed to be on this. They were album. originally supposed to be on the album. Both yeah. of them would fit very well on this album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And
1: what songs would you take off to put them on? But um, that's that's something we different. can di-
0: we can discuss that actually, because <laughs> I think there's two themes that go through this album, and they're a little bit counter to each other. Okay. But.
1: Okay, so so let's talk about uh, the album. So okay, so we're actually Sergeant into the Peppers. album itself. Yeah, well. Very good. So, yeah, because now that they So, basically, I think once that happened to Surgeon, to uh, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, I think they kind of lost the impetus, like, to continue on with this childhood idea. So then they just kind of like, okay, we got to get to the next thing. So, I, weirdly enough, the next song they started recording was The Day in the Life. Okay. So they lost two brilliant songs and just started another brilliant song. But I think we're going to do it in the order of the album. Yeah, so let's we're do track start by with, track. Yeah, we'll start with the first song, which is well, "Sardine." Well, let me just go like
0: uh, the two themes that I think that are uh, in this album. Sure. I mean, the one that's the the obvious. Well, let's go with the, the 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 less obvious, which is what you discussed before, which is the idea of growing up. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of songs in here. It feels like of nostalgia for childhood and now I'm getting older and where's my place and oh, you know, and I I used to be this and then all working all its way up to when I'm 64. Mm-hmm. Like, there really does feel like... But a, when I'm 64
1: a, is a song from, from childhood, not a song from old but age. But it's a
0: projection. No, no. It's a projection, though, of what you expect your old age will be and not necessarily from childhood. I mean, that can be, you know, young man, you know, in love, you know, thinking what's going to happen in okay. the future. Um But it it feels like you know reflections on from childhood to old age that's theme 1 okay. the other theme is circus is in town okay and this is the circus has come to town and there's some very circusy songs in in this this is a band and- playing Yeah, this is this is a band. Well, yeah, I'm trying to get the uh, Bee Gees version out of my head, (laughs) but yes, the this is a band playing. I almost don't even see it as like on a bandstand. I I see tents. I see like the circus has come to town. Welcome to this world. Come on in. We're going to show you something something special and something different. And you know when I can see
1: that, I would actually have an easier time with that interpretation of it as a spectacular. Mm -hmm. This is just a spectacle. Of all these different things, rather than having a true theme. But. Well,
0: there's one. There's one song that, uh, when we get to it, I think combines both of these okay. quite well. Okay. But let's start off with you know where you start off with. Yeah. Which is uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. What a song! It is what a song, eh? Like you're you're there. Like and we're in. I mean, this really <laughs> does feel like the band that's coming down the street to announce the circus is in town. It's a you know here it comes. Yeah. yeah. It's a funny hybrid as well. Of what? Of like
1: the kind of new rock sound coming out that time. Like you had the Who, like the power trio rock sound. Like bands were kind of shedding the rhythm guitar player and were stre- streamlining themselves. So you had like Jimi Hendrix Experience, three, three members, right? Bass, drums, guitar player, singer. The Who, even though they had Roger Daltrey, he didn't play an instrument. If so it was basically just a power trio with a singer. Cream, three musicians. Um, Blue Cheer, like all these bands are coming out, starting to emerge at that time all have this kind of power, big rock sound, like this kind of new sound, not a pop sound anymore. It's a rock sound. It's a different sound. Mm-hmm. And so the song has that element to it. And then there was a also a different kind of weird trend at the same time, which was this kind of uh, nostalgia for Edwardiana,
0: could you call it that? All right. Where you had like... Like um, an example of what you're talking about
1: then? Well, you had... Um, it, it was... Um, There's um, different kind of shops, like fashion shops. One was called Granny Takes a Trip. And the other one was called, I Was Lord Kitchener's Valet. <laughs> okay. And, and what they sold were like old army uniforms. If you've ever seen the picture of Jimmy, Jimmy I almost said Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Hendrix, and he's wearing uh, like a military jacket, like an old-fashioned military jacket, that's there, where he got it from. There
0: is a uh, Jimmy Hendrix uh, shrine down the street from okay. where we're recording right now, which is okay. where his parents used to run a corner shop. And I believe there is a uh, picture of him in that jacket in the there window.
1: There you go. That's where he got it from. Yeah. That's where he went to that store and he bought that jacket at that store because they would have like old...
0: Those are War great surplus. names for shops. Holy cow!
1: <laughs> and so the idea—it's like was, they
0: tell a story in the damn title for the uh, for the for the store. Well, what people here's for- a place to buy some apples, Governor. All right, that's the uh, apple shop. One thing people forget about, like about the '60s scene before
1: it became all dirty and yucky and hippie, it was very uh, much about dress up. And about presenting yourself, you know, and if you look at pictures, there's a great band uh, in San Francisco called uh, the Charlatans. And they would just dress up in the greatest clothes. They'd be dressed up like, like a bunch of, like 1920s college students wearing their big letter Letterman shirts and wearing their little <laughs> beanie caps and stuff like that they'd all be like yeah. authentically dressed with clothes they found in thrift shops and stuff like that or they'd be dressed up like sailors or they dressed like cowboys and that was a big part of that time was, well, you had was dress to, up
0: because it, it, you would be on a show with a bunch of other bands that look just like you same amount of people same age yeah. same general look
1: but people even who weren't in bands did
0: this oh, okay I understand and but I, if you're in those bands which and then you're mimicking the bands you like and the style but like if you want to make yourself distinct you know, what band did you like? I like the ones dressed as a bunch of ducks. You're yeah. like, okay, you know, those guys. Otherwise, how would you how would you remember? You know, when you ever see these uh, big concerts with all the bands coming out and doing two songs, I, they all look alike.
1: Yeah. You yeah. know? So you want to stand out. But so, yeah. Like, I mean, the reason the rock sound kind of started coming around was because there was more, more amplification. Like, um, Vox themselves created this big new amp. For the beatles so they could use it for live playing not realizing the beatles were no longer going to be playing live so they created mm-hmm. this big 200 200 amp 200 volt amp or 200 amp amp anyway it was a big amp it had all this power and they're all like yeah they're gonna beep oh they're not gonna use it on stage <laughs> but you know there's other bands who are taking these new amps and we're using them sure. like the who and we're bringing in uh distortion and feedback and and you know over all this overdriven rock and roll sound and stuff like that so that's part of it but like I say there's this, also this Edwardiana so you have this kind of weird little moment of where suddenly the horns come in you know it's all kind of bop, bop, well you know? what
0: it feels like is uh, with Revolver there was, I mean there were some really rockin' songs of Revolver but there was also a lot of really introverted songs mm. and you're expecting oh we're gonna go back to that and this one just is right out there it yeah. feels like this is a huge band performing in the in the opening song <laughs> Yes, four French horns anything else on uh, Sergeant?
1: Oh, I could say lots more about it.
0: Oh, do you want to, though? Sure. All right, go ahead. You don't want me to? No, I'm just...
1: Well, I just want to say, okay, so um, one thing I like about this song, <laughs> You're though- the co-host. Okay. Whatever, if you've got more to say,
0: you've got more to say.
1: Well, the other thing I like about this song is that... Um, well, I was just going to say one thing about... Like, you're saying that this was, this was kind of the... You know, the song came about much later, but obviously it was kind of the key to for Paul McCartney to develop this theme of uh, Sergeant Pepper. John had kind of withdrawn... He was perfectly happy to let Paul step in and and drive the sessions, and Paul Jane Asher was away in the states, so Paul had plenty of spare time to be coming in early and and doing stuff. And but the thing I like about the vision that the Beatles had of this kind of new utopia that was supposedly coming in the '60s was that it was ex- inclusive and not exclusive. You know, Sergeant Pepper isn't like a fascist pig. He's not some old mm-hmm. guy. You know, he's Sergeant Pepper. You know, he's included in in this vision. You know what I mean? And then the other thing I th- think is kind of interesting is all the sound effects that are used in it. Because it's interesting, like at Abbey Road, they actually have, they had a sound effects tape library. Right. That was kept in this old green cupboard down in the, some storeroom. And it was looked after by one guy. It was his job to look after it. And when they were recording things, whether they were recording out on location, they would save parts of the tape that they could and, and add it to the library and file it in there.
0: Oh, all So right. if they were
1: recording in a field and they had some nice field sounds, they would take, cut those out and put them in the library. And so, and it was, it was all carefully, uh, you know, kept like a a library and so um so for sergeant pepper you have volume 28 audience applause and atmosphere is used at the very beginning for the audience murmuring sounds and stuff like that and then for the applause and laughter near the end it's volume 6 applause and laughter which is actually taped at a beyond the fringe show so they took the that sound from the uh, beyond the fringe and they used it in the in that, and then for the actual audience screaming, which is used to cover the edit going into the into just a little help from my friends, is actually taken from the live at the Hollywood Bowl before it was before it was released. They took the they took the sound of the audience shrieking for the Beatles and put it onto the
0: uh, onto that part oh, that's there. That's very very cool. So yeah, so it's kind of there's your deep cuts, everybody. Yeah, huh? where else are you gonna <laughs> hear that kind of stuff anywhere? No, 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 no. Find that, find that anywhere else. All right, all righty. Let's go to the next song. All right. Now, what I like is how big this is, and then we're taking it way down. Mm-hmm. We're taking it as uh, we're way down, just putting all the focus on Ringo. Yeah, and it's uh, with a little help from my friends. Yeah. What's fascinating to me, very. Go on.
1: I, I know you want to say something, but is what's interesting is this song? Like when you listen to it, when you when you listen to the album, and it goes "Billy Shears," and you're like, "Okay, that's the end of Sergeant Pepper, and the beginning of no, no. It's actually was recorded for and with with a little help from my mm-hmm. friends, which is interesting to me." You know, because it sounds like it's leading into the song. Well, but it's, it's jarring
0: whenever everyone plays just one part of it. Yeah. And, like, it cuts off. Like, no, you, this is yeah, one big gotta number. Yeah, you got to it Even though down. they do separate it. Now, here's a, just a silly question I have. Were people complaining about Ringo and his singing at this point? No. Like, the idea of, like, if I sang out of tune, if you'd stand up and walk out on me. No one No one thought Ringo had a little bit of a mm, strained, strained voice?
1: Oh, maybe there was some comment. I don't think people who are Beatles fans care to care to jot. But it wasn't a
0: general public thing.
1: I don't think so. All right, fair enough. I mean I'm sure there are people who are music snobs who dissed everything the beatles did mm-hmm. that was my hip talk there everybody
0: <laughs> but ringo you know ringo would always get you know the ringo song mm-hmm. to, and you know i i was just wondering the drummer if, number yeah, the drummer number and uh, and yeah and you know you don't necessarily focus on the voice too much when you're in the drummer number mm-hmm. and so yeah i was just curious if that opening line of what would you do if i sang out of tune would just stand up and walk out on me if that was a little bit of a reference to you know le, to, to ringo and his voice I don't know. I don't think they meant I mean, it that I'm way. I mean, I'm going to say this as someone who loves Ringo's voice. Yeah. You know, I love I love me some Yellow Submarine. I love me, you know, uh, I, I I love me. I can't think of any other songs by Ringo, but I like them. This was I'm done, blanking.
1: This was done qu- Other Yellow Submarine, did you say? Yeah. What about uh, Act Naturally?
0: There you go. Boom. <laughs> boys? Boys. <laughs> I was going to say girls, and I went, that's not right. It's it's, it's boys. No, that can't be side. right, but it was.
1: You were right. Um... This song was recorded a bit later in the sessions, and actually, what started off as kind of like, we got all the time in the world became, you guys, are you guys getting done here? You guys <laughs> getting done? So this is one of the songs that
0: yeah. came about that You can that hear time. the toes tapping in the background. Like To me, up, this really. is the
1: best drummer number of all the Beatles albums. This is okay. my favorite Ringo song. but um, It's 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 a really fun song. It's a really sweet, fun song. What's What's interesting is if you read the, uh, there's a guy named Hunter Davies, and he did like the very first, and I guess only, authorized biography of the Beatles. He got to stay with them. Hang around with them for like six months. He was attended the surgeon Pepper sessions. He was hung around with them socially. You know, did all kinds of stuff with them, and he was there when they were, when John and Paul were working on um, with a little help from my friend. And so you know, so this talking about like them at the piano, and you know, uh, Paul had the kind of the music in mind. Once again, very much based on Penny Lane. That kind of he—it's obviously like this kind of. that's not to sound And so, uh, so he was playing this for John, and then they're they, It just describes him like trying to work on the lyrics and trying to come up with stuff that'll fit. And and like John's thing, you know, um, what do you see when you turn out the light? And then they're trying to think of something. They—they and and they were just trying to throwing suggestions in because when they—the first thing they started with was oh, they started with a question. So they're like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's have more questions. <laughs> so they're trying to think of questions that they could ask. So they're going through questions and stuff like that, but. He's talking about how like friends come over to the house while they're doing this and they're hanging around, sitting reading. You know, Cynthia Lennon job comes and she's there, and they're talking. And then then the, and then John and Paul start playing like tequila, and they're and, on the piano and they're singing along to tequila. You know, guitar and piano playing and and then throwing in just like nonsense words instead of saying tequila, they're just saying whatever. You know, and talking about how they used to do that on stage in Hamburg, and it's sort of reminiscing. And then they went they played like I want to hold your hand. You know, and then they got up and they did something else for a while and they came back and they worked on the song and they finally kind of got it kind of into shape. And then Paul phones this, phones George Martin, you know, well, we need to get into the studio because we got the song all done, ready to go. You know, so then he has to book time for them or find time. And, and so they head in and do it, but it was done the same day as, as they were also shooting, um, for their, in their costumes for the center the centerfold for the album okay so they did that and so they actually didn't finish till like five or six in the morning doing the song but it was then rather quickly but yeah it's a really interesting part in in the book actually well
0: the um the uh you know asking a question then answering it is a nice thing to do musically because questions go up at the end so it's a setup Mm. and then it's a bum it's a setup it's a bum it's a nice uh, musical thing now i got a question for you what was Uh, the original title sure let's go with that first go ahead bad finger boogie Okay, good choice. Good choice to change on that. <laughs> now, here's my, here's my question to you. Um, Bob Dylan misheard uh, a lyric about getting high yeah. once upon a time. Yeah. Thought, ah, these guys are on board. Mm-hmm. Now, is this the first because they say, you know, I get high with a little help. No, album. they use it in other songs. Okay. Is it, But this isn't the first time that they've said openly that uh, they get high uh, in a song? Uh,
1: I guess, no, well, no, because in that other song, It's Only Love, he says, I get high every time... I, she walks by okay but that's different my, oh my.
0: okay i get high every time she gets uh, by but that's emotionally uh, uh. high when you say i get high with a little help from my friends like in this one it really feels like you're saying mm. you get high yeah. with your friends
1: one of many songs in this album banned by the bbc
0: oh is that right yeah oh, okay and yeah. when did that ban uh get lifted any idea
1: Oh, I'm sure it got lifted before the 70s started, but yes, Okay. at that time. In those staid days of suits I mean, and ties. I mean, clearly
0: the last album was had uh, some LSD elements to it, mm. but of course it's undertones. It's undertones, and This, tones, this yeah. felt overtones. Yeah. This felt like a bit of a single entendre. A little more
1: in your face. And I think by this point, Paul had come out and said that he took acid... That was in '67. Oh, he mean,
0: had by this point because he was the holdout, wasn't he? Of, yeah, of the group. Yeah,
1: he was the last one to do it. But at some point, it might have been after *Sgt. Pepper* came out that Paul, in a *Saturday Evening Post* interview, admitted that he had taken acid. Okay. Um, yeah. The,
0: though I always, I guess, I always thought that getting high was pot, in this. Cause... Once
1: again, another example in the song of this idea that you know the Beatles, even though they themselves found other people boring, and would always tend to drift back into each other's orbits as, when they're when they were still a band before they started hating each other. Even though that was a natural thing for them to do, they still thought of this kind of coming change in the culture as being this sort of inclusive and communal revolution. That's well, they would drift
0: back together later, too, after they broke up. I, I guess, you know? in,
1: some, to, in certain ways.
0: And you'd hear, you'd hear interviews with them and they talk about, you know, will you ever get back together? Ah, there might be, maybe. It wasn't the I'll Never See Them Again. Now, now we've had enough talking about drugs, then. Let's get on to the next song. Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> Lucy in the Sky with thiamethyl- Diamonds. Uh, That's right. Yeah. It's just a nice song about a lady mm-hmm. in the sky yeah. with some diamonds.
1: Well, you know, John Lennon would never admit that losing this guy with diamonds meant LSD,
0: right? And
1: I, so I will believe him that's because he fine. was not a person who would lie. Okay, but here's what you I You know: he would proudly tell you if that was what he meant. Right. Then he would say it, you know.
0: Now on the last album, we had a lot of uh, going upstream and going downstream mm-hmm. and very trippy, yeah, uh, things. And now we're fully on a river, yeah. In this, I guess that's what connects taken
1: me. taken from one of his favorite books, uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, Through the Looking Glass.
0: Oh, sorry. What was the uh, what was the taken? the river trip? If you read, uh,
1: there's a chapter called Wool and Water, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's a very trippy trip down a river in a a boat that Ellis takes. Oh, okay. And so he based that that aspect of the song. So part of the song is based on uh, Julian's drawing Mm -hmm. of a friend at school, friend named Lucy. And the other part is is this... Taking these ideas, like the kind of surreal elements from Lewis Carroll, and, and putting them into
0: well, now I'm gonna I'm gonna throw back to um, I'm gonna throw back to "Strawberry Feels Forever," and mm. that this song sounds feels a bit to me like that one again. If you take the drugs out of it, and let's do that then, okay. uh, then it becomes sort of a childhood type thing. And again, you're lying back to me and looking at the sky. And what do you see in the sky? You see Lucy in the sky with diamonds. <laughs> and didn't he say it was based on a drawing that his daughter did?
1: No, it's son. An- well, his Julian, son did. Yeah,
0: Julian yeah, did. That's right. Yeah. Sorry about that. And I, I see no reason. It's to, hard to, now with the long hair. The kids, you can't tell from the boys <laughs> and the girls. Am I right? <laughs> Everyone get a job. I, I don't um, uh, like. I say I don't
1: like. He proudly would have told you if if it was. Okay, that's like, fine. He was just that kind of person. Then
0: let's, for the sake of this show, say he that seemed... was true. Everything he said there was true. Then it's a child's point of view because if it's based on uh, Julian's drawing, it's yeah. it's a child's drawing of something in the sky. We're going into childhood, yeah. and that fits in with the. Childhood, growing up, sort of theme that I Mm -hmm. see, but uh, also, you know, if you're in a circus, I could see someone. uh, I don't necessarily
1: see it's about childhood. Okay, I mean it could be anyone who's experiencing this. I don't see going down a river
0: and looking up at the sky and seeing someone flying in the sky. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I don't think why that's only childhood that has this would have this experience. I don't think an adult would uh, be probably going down a river looking up. If a, an adult's going down a river and looking up at the, the sky and imagining a lady flying with diamonds in the sky, yeah. that seems childish, childhood. But if it's an adult, probably uh, some drinks or something has happened I, uh, to uh, make you see w- that thing. Why would it be a child thinking that? I don't see. Well, one once once again we've established that it was based on a child's drawing. Yeah. So okay, that okay. was that information. Mm-hmm. We're, we're told it's not drugs. Seems to be drugs. If you didn't, oh, if, no, you, no. if you let's weren't say, told, if you weren't told no, no. that it wasn't drugs, you would assume it's drugs. So let's take drugs out of that. No, no, no. So why I, we cannot this? leave
1: drugs out of it. Obviously, it has a drug well, element be, to it. You're
0: believing. You're believing yeah, him that I'm it's saying, not about drugs.
1: I'm saying that this the title uh-huh. is not you know
0: short for LSD. Okay, so you're saying it's this title is yeah. not about LSD, but it's an LSD themed or flavored flavored song for sure. Oh, okay. It's a trippy song. Come on. It's a trippy There's song. There's cellophane taxis, man. Yeah? There's newspaper something or others. That, But you know what? When you're saying all those things, those are things like a kid could, could build. Well,
1: but so can a, an adult. And an
0: adult's more likely to imagine mm, those but, things a But in an adult's building those things, it's a little weird. But it's but why would it... Well, okay. It, it is. An adult's building toys and making stuff out of newspaper and whatever. <laughs> then the adult... <laughs> Built is, out of
1: string? Yes.
0: That's a little weird. That's a thing okay. a kid would do. Maybe that's childhood. Yeah, maybe that's childhood. All sure. right. Sure. Yeah, you're right. Oh, I'll give wow. it to you. What I'm giving the? it to you All right. I'm not getting anything else out of this show, folks. I only get one of those a show. All right, we I'll moving to on you. to to next one, or you got something else?
1: for I this just one? wanted to say, like uh, that kind of harpsichord like sound in the song that sounds so weird. It's actually it's not a harpsichord, and at the time, it's they said it was a Hammond organ. It's actually a Lowry organ being played. The good old Lowry uh, DSO Heritage Deluxe organ. But what's interesting is that they, they put it We in, get specific, folks. <laughs> but what's interesting is that it's not just like set on harpsichord. it's to eBay now. Try and get one. <laughs> find one. There is, uh, it was set for harpsichord, vibra heart, guitar, and music box, all selected at the same time to give it that particular sound, which is interesting.
0: I'm wondering if one day we're going to find that you're just making all of this up. You'll never know. Okay. You, you're, you're right. And I, it, was also, it, was, okay.
1: it was also the most very speeded song on the album.
0: How oh, so? Okay. If I had my metronome out, what's going to happen? Yes. Because I know some people no, who listen it's to not, the show set a metronome it's and not try his, this out. It's not
1: a descendant metronome because it, it's, once it's mixed, it doesn't change the speed. But what they're very speeding is is when they record at a slower or faster to change the oh, okay, how the gotcha. voices are. So, for instance, the rhythm track was done at 49 cycles per second. Track two is John's lead vocal. And Paul with singing along with him. Taped at 45 cycles per second. Track three, the second Lennon lead with Paul McCartney on harmonies again, was taped at 48 and a half cycles. Yeah. On to track four, at normal speed, went the bass and George on fuzz guitar. So it was all these different speeds all combined into this one. It was very strange. You know, because it just gave you this different kind of wonky sound, which is what they wanted for the song, just to have that kind of weird, dreamy, kind of slightly wash sound to it, you know?
0: Nice. Okay. Hey, that's,
1: you know what? It's getting better. What, the show? Yeah.
0: Oh, nice one. Right. Oh, not oh, And, and also the album. Yeah, uh, getting better all the time. This this feels to me, uh, I mean, and obviously I know that John Lennon threw in the uh, couldn't get much worse. But like this feels like a nice little fun back and forth between, you know, mm-hmm. Paul and John kind yeah. of heckling almost from the yeah. side. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then it has a sort of weird confessional moment where he's talking about he used to beat and... Uh Mistreat his woman. And now, was uh,
0: that something that uh, that Paul is on record for doing as well as John? Or... No, it is John. Just John. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's again. This... I think Paul
1: was also a, a male chauvinist jerk of the, the time. Yeah. I mean, at the time, he would have been seen as totally normal
0: for someone to, you know, want someone to cook for him. But, but sometimes normal is not a good thing. Um, Psst, whatever. Th- <laughs> it's, it's true. Uh, so uh, in in this one, this this is one of those growing up songs it feels like it's like Mm -hmm. i used to be this but then as i'm getting older perspective change and you got to admit it's it's getting better yeah you know even even if even if your perspective is then that you know because it couldn't get any worse but no you've just uh you've stopped being that guy that's just angry all the time which is what you are when you're young just frustrated and angry and and then uh things change as you get a little bit older as long as you take the right perspective because you could also be the john lennon in that
1: the phrase itself, it's getting better, came from Jimmy Nichol, who was, uh, we've mentioned before, he was hired to be the drummer for the Beatles when Ringo fell ill with tonsillitis the day before their Australian tour. Mm. And so they had to quickly hire this guy, and he had to quickly learn the repertoire, and it got thrown into the deep end and became the Beatle drummer on tour, and they would say to him, how's
0: it going, Jimmy? And he'd say, it's getting better.
1: <laughs> probably with his eyes really wide, slightly panicked, look, like he wanted to dart and hide. While
0: wearing a Ringo mask. That's right. It's the only way they won't tear them apart. So
1: that's where the... So I guess Paul was probably remembering that and sort of chuckling at it and started the song. And then there's a great story um, about the same time. They were doing the vocal session and uh, John was talking to George Martin and he was just, he was saying he wasn't feeling very well and and he was kind of looking around, looked kind of dazed and George's like, you know, John, maybe you should go up on the roof and just have, you know, some fresh air and that might make me feel better. So he just kind of guided him to the door and just let him go upstairs to the roof of the Abbey Road Studios. And then uh, Paul, I guess a little later, goes, where's John? And George's like, oh, I just, he wasn't feeling well, so I let him go upstairs. Well, Paul knew that John was tripping on acid and he was up on the roof. So he and George went, George Harrison went tearing upstairs to the roof to bring him back down because there's no railings or anything up there. So they are afraid that he would have gone right over the edge. But yeah he meant to take an upper i guess but actually accidentally took acid instead and so uh yeah <laughs> He was okay. Good stories.
0: Yeah. All, all right.
1: right. Besides the fact that he was tripping. But, you know, actually, the Beatles did not do drugs while they were recording. They did not record while no, be they were... foolish. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because they're professionals.
0: Well, yeah. also, you take... All right. Guys, everyone uh, listening and gals, don't take drugs. But if you do take drugs, mm-hmm. take them to inspire you. Don't take them to write. Because if you've ever written anything while you're on drugs, or drunk, or after you've just woken up from a nap and wrote down that good idea, <laughs> you know, that's going to... Like, don't... <laughs> Don't be recorded. It's not a good idea. Sure. Okay. Uh, moving on to one of my favorite songs about home repair, uh, <laughs> Fixing a Hole. Oh, did you know this is about heroin? What? That's, that was rumored. I don't think so. I think... Was that really a rumor? It was rumored rumor at the time, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Explain how this is about heroin.
1: Because it's a hole. Like, you're putting a hole in your arm.
0: Okay. And how is the rest of I the... Don't, I don't uh, know, fixing I the cracks and all yeah, that I stuff. How's that about all it. about? You got eczema? You're also putting a little something on there?
1: Because <laughs> it actually was... Pref- Paul McCartney says it was referring to him doing his own repairs on his. He just bought a farmhouse in Scotland, or mm-hmm. he still has a farmhouse in Scotland. He had just bought it, and so he was doing repairs to it. He was fixing, literally fixing holes. Yeah, and thinking about being a beetle, thinking about you know his life and stuff like that. And that's but what you stop your about.
0: mind from wandering where it'll go because you're focusing yeah. on something yeah. real. That's right. Yeah. yeah,
1: and both he and both he and John Lennon have both talked about the fact that John Lennon, particularly, well, especially during his acid period, was able to forget himself and almost become other yep. you know he's able to just withdraw completely and almost become outside of his own body you know the sort of mystical out-of-body experiences in a way just that sort of forgetting who you are i'm sure you've done it too where you just mm-hmm. zone out to such a point that you hardly exist in, at all and so that's, that's kind something
0: of, that's something you also do with meditation mm-hmm. yeah
1: and so yeah he's sort of talking about that i think as well is that you know reality focuses you on real things
0: that's you know? right yeah and that that feels like a bit of a you know and maybe i'm i'm pushing it for this one because I can't think of how this is circus. Uh, but this feels like a little bit of a growing up song, too. It's okay. like it's not stressing about the other things. It's just just focus okay. and fix some stuff.
1: The significant thing about this song, in terms of Beatles history, is it was the first song that was recorded outside of Abbey Road Studios.
0: Oh, where was it recorded? It was
1: recorded at Regent Sound. And uh, because uh, the Beatles were um, disorganized, and they called G- George Martin that day and said, George, we need the studio. And George said, you know what? It's booked. No, you can't. We can't use Abbey Road, so wow. he had to book them in a different studio. He could attend. George could come. George Martin could attend, but Jeff Emmerich couldn't because Emmerich was Busy. a staff employee, of EMI, so he couldn't work in other studios. Any
0: idea who was booked?
1: Uh, they think it might have been Scylla Black.
0: Okay, that's a good story for them to tell. <laughs> just like you know, uh, you know this song. They couldn't record it to uh, the studio because because uh, we were there. Yeah, that's a that's a neat uh, neat little song. yeah. Fixing halt, hole, just nice simple song, does the job cleanses the palate a little bit moving the, on in the album the
1: other little story of that yeah it's basically the other little story on this is that uh, jesus was there when they recorded this apparently and when, they measured each other to see who was bigger when paul mccartney when paul mccartney was leaving his house uh uh-huh. or at home that day there was a knock at the gate and he went out and out this is what he says i don't okay. know if it's true okay. and he answered the, and there was a the guy there and usually he would just sort of send them away if they weren't interesting but this guy said he was jesus so he's like okay you're jesus i better invite you in cuz you don't want to turn away jesus yeah that's the rule and so um he invited him in, and they are talking for a little bit, and he's, you know, and then he's like, you know, I have to go to this recording session. Do you want, do you want to come along? So he brought Jesus to the recording session. So Jesus sat in the studio in the now, corner quietly. Now, quick question.
0: How was Jesus uh, dressed? Modern day, or was Jesus dressed old-timey? Does not
1: does not specify in the story.
0: Understood. And so... I'm assuming beard. I'm I, assuming I long so. hair. I don't know. Very hard to tell apart from John at that point, maybe? I,
1: I think somehow, I think that all the people who thought they were Napoleon didn't really dress in Napoleonic you're... Okay. But,
0: I'm just assuming yeah. if Jesus was there at that time, he would probably dress in the style of the day. He would sure. not dress old timey. Yeah. He wouldn't be wearing Like Jesus wrapping. in the day of Jesus did not dress like a caveman. No. You know, so there. Okay. So, but he had no uh. Reason to. So Jesus shows up at the studio. Yeah. First, he shows up he at Abbey there. Road by He's mistake. He goes, I thought you guys would be here. It's like, <laughs> no, we weren't booked there. And it's like, oh, okay. So Jesus goes to the other studio with Paul. And, uh,
1: how long did he stay? I think just for the session. And I- everyone was game. I guess everyone seemed to have a good chuckle about
0: it. Now, Jesus in no way said anything during the session. We cannot hear Jesus on that track. No, you cannot. Well, you know what? And this was fixing a hole? Yeah. Well, he's a carpenter. Of course he'd show up for that sure, song. Would. That would be his favorite it song. It makes sense. Doing repairs around the house? Sure. He uh, knew they were recording it. He's Jesus. He knows that. Of course. Okay. All right. She's leaving home. That was... That was Okay. That might be my favorite bit of trivia. <laughs> I, uh, I'm bumping it up to that one. <laughs> now, ahead. Now, she's leaving home... Mm-hmm. Uh, this does fit in to me, because this feels... Th- this somat- is your circus one. Well, this is both. Oh. This is making the choice to uh, to grow up and leave the family, but... And run away and join the circus. Exactly. That's what it is. <laughs> because why do you run away to join the circus? Because your life is boring, yeah. and you want to go and have fun. And that's what she's doing. She's leaving home, not for any abuse, not yeah. for anything terrible, yeah. uh, not it's unlivable at home. Yeah. She just wants to have fun. and And that's the one thing she does not have. In her in her regular life, is it her staid British, boring beans on toast, uh, coddled eggs life, and so off she goes. Uh, like uh, so to marry a sir- man
1: from the motor trade. So she's marrying a car dealer. No, is she
0: marrying him? Yeah. Do they say marry? I think they say to marry a man from the motor trade. I'm going to take a look at the lyrics while you okay, tell well, you, trivia. Sure,
1: I'll tell you some.
0: I'll tell you some trivia. So Please. this is actually based on. Hey, a, Dave, do you have any trivia on oh, this? Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> this is based on a true story. Actually, it was an article in the Daily Mirror that uh-huh. uh, Paul McCartney was reading, and so we just thought, oh, this is interesting. And at that point, she hadn't been found, so she just had disappeared. She oh okay. She was, been, was missing for ten days before she was found. She she did make the mistake of telling, the real alive person made the mistake of telling uh, who. Um, who she was going out with So they were able to track her down that way No
0: word of a marriage in this She's meeting a man her, from the motor grave Her name was grave. Melanie Coe okay. And the interesting thing was
1: Is that she actually met Paul McCartney Three years earlier Because she had been chosen uh, As a prize winner At a dancing contest by Paul McCartney On, on, uh, on Ready Steady Go Oh, neat. So she, he had already met this person who inspired this song that he wrote for Sgt. Pepper. And,
0: and, and when did he say that she was the inspiration? Was that like uh, later on he Yeah, much it? later on, that, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. She must have been thrilled by that.
1: Yeah, it would have been interesting. The other, the, to me, the sad part of this song is this is also a song that George Martin was kind of snubbed by Paul. Like Paul wanted George to do the uh, string arrangement for it. And George was terribly busy and couldn't do it right away. And so he told Paul, well, you just have to wait and then I'll do it. And Paul said, In his typical Paul McCartney impatient way, uh, insensitive way, he just kind of, he just hired someone else, this guy named Mike Leander, to come in and he did the string arrangements for the song. And George was very hurt by it, actually. George Martin was terribly hurt by it. But he still conducted it and produced a session and everything. And he said it was a good arrangement, like he just did a few minor changes to it. uh, And, but yeah, I think he was, his feelings were hurt and Paul McCartney couldn't understand why. Because he's Paul McCartney, you know. He's just, you know, I'm in the middle of doing something. Yeah. I need to get it done right now.
0: Yeah, there's other stuff to do. Yeah. Uh, looking at again, ly- looking at the lyrics, meeting a man from the motor. Oh, it trip. says meeting a man. No from word, the motor. no oh, word okay. about marriage. Okay. So, uh, like, since the whole point is like, I'm gonna go and have some fun. Yeah. I don't see her getting into a marriage unless that's the ironic twist is that she's just getting in the same relationship her folks were in, and the cycle continues. You could, th- you could look at it cynically that way. You know, and the you know, but uh, but I just took it as like she's she's going off to have fun.
1: The actual man she ran away for was going to be a croupier, or was a croupier. Okay,
0: which is a dealer of cards. A dealer of cards. That's right. Okay. Yeah,
1: dealt many times to James Bond. Yes. So next song, being Playing baccarat.
0: Banco. <laughs> yeah, until until later where they went. People don't get it. Poker, <laughs> poker. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. I love that title. I love being for the benefit of Mr. Mr. Yeah. Kite. Because and, <laughs> and now we're full-on circus. Like, this is the most circusy... You Like, you could hear this song mm-hmm. on a merry-go-round. Yeah. Like, this is just... Uh, this is pure, uh, trippy, circusy, you're on a trapeze, just going. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, as part of John's, at the time, tendency to write to what was happening around him, um, when they were in uh, Kent doing the... Um, I think it was Kent. Doing the um, filming for the Strawberry Fields Forever promo... He found this circus poster in an antique shop. And so, what he did is he just put it, hung it up on the wall over his piano, and just played the piano and sang. The words from the poster. Really? And here's what the poster says. Oh,
0: good, good. We've seen the poster. It's real. Yeah. Okay, all right, let's see.
1: It says, Pablo Fancus Circus Royale, Town Meadows Rochdale, grandest night of the season, and positively the last night but three, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, late oh. late of Wells Circus, and Mr. J. Henderson, the celebrated somerset thrower, wire dancer, vaulter, rider, and company, on Tuesday... Evening, february fourteenth, eighteen forty three, Messrs Kite and Henderson, in announcing the following entertainments, assure the public that this night's production will be one of the most splendid ever produced in this town, having been some days in preparation. Mr Kite will for this night only introduce <laughs> the celebrated horse Xanthus, well known to be one of the best broke horses in the world. Mr Henderson will undertake the arduous task of throwing twenty one Somersets on the solid ground. Mr Kite will appear for the first time this season on the tightrope when two gentlemen amateurs of this town will perform with him. Mr. Henderson will, for the first time in Rochdale introduce his extraordinary trampoline leaps and somersets over men and horses, through hoops, over garters, and lastly, through a hog's head of real fire. Wow.
0: Okay. In this branch
1: of the profession, Mr. H. challenges the
0: world. That, that was okay. the
1: full text of the poster that he found. Okay,
0: let me just say, posters were bigger then. <laughs>
1: Posters were wordier then. That
0: was a big poster.
1: Is it's the, not a big poster. It was just very
0: wordy. Was there, no, was there room for an image on it? There's a couple little it? tiny images, but mostly it's all all writing. Holy moly, that's a lot. That's a <laughs> lot of writing. Okay, that's, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And so yeah,
1: he took that poster and he just sang, you know, he did change a little bit, added Henry the Horse, Dancing the World and stuff like that, but mostly it's taken, you know, from that poster and, and just... So that's why, that's another reason why I think "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" was inspired by a drawing. Yeah. Because at this time he just seemed really to be inspired by just taking things and finding things and and, and incorporating them into his music, you know. And so.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you didn't tell me that this song was about drugs. <laughs> I'm glad. It was banned though because of the Henry the horse line. Ex- oh, because horse. Henry drugs? and horse are both
1: uh, both slang for heroin. Oh, so ridiculous! Come on, yeah, okay, so ridiculous.
0: nope. No, that's reading way too much in it.
1: And, um, yeah, so...
0: Now, have we flipped the album at, at, at any no, point? No, not yet. Not okay. Yet.
1: So, um, this is the final song of Side One. This is the seventh song.
0: Oh, this is a heck of a song to end with. Okay. Yeah,
1: so, yeah, he asked George Martin, he said, I want it to sound like a circus. I want to have a circus carnival atmosphere. I want to smell the sawdust in the floor. Yeah, you what taste he said the popcorn, him. yeah. And so, yeah, when they started it, you know, it has that great bass, that kind of great room bass sound. And and Ringo's drumming is so great in the song with his kind of drawn-out uh drawing out symbols, and then the way he plays the the snare. But most important was what George Martin. He well, George Martin tried to find a steam calliope that they could rent for the to play play in the studio. But there were no manually controlled ones available. All of them were we use punch cards. All right. So they just were like giant old fashioned player pianos where you just wow. put a card in and it would just play. You know, almost like a music box. It just yep. plays by the by these cards. And so what he did then was he got Jeff Emmerich to take a bunch of tapes of of steam calliapes and cut them up and he had them count bars, so he counted say four bars and cut them all up at that point and then just throw them in the air and then splice them together and that would be the sound. So they would have this random wash of all these different calliopes. And Emmerich says, what was weird is that he threw them in the air and put them together and they sounded practically the same. So they just kind of reconnected together. So <laughs> he said I had to take them and turn them backwards and, and manually Change them around to make it sound more random, because it's actually random hard. wasn't random. It's hard to get a true randomness, yeah. really. So yeah, that's so it gives that great, great wash of the of the. Uh, and what's what do you think? Is,
0: that's one problem we have as people is we can't accept randomness. We make patterns. Yeah. So like you listen to stuff and yeah, you've got to force. You've really got to force randomness.
1: And what um, Lennon later didn't like being for the benefit of Mr. Kite or any songs that weren't directly about him. Because he he said they he said because they weren't objective and he was speaking about more about McCartney's songs from the period and he said these stories about boring people doing boring things, being postmen and secretaries and writing home, I'm not interested in third parties third party songs. I like to write about me because I know me. Mm-hmm. But I think it's kind of a wrong idea, <laughs> quite frankly. But it's uh, uh, much more interesting to look at the world around you and bring yourself to that. Mm-hmm. But bring yourself to the world. It shouldn't always be the world coming to you. But sometimes you have to. Reflect on the world and bring your experiences to, to it's that It's definitely as well. two
0: different artistic points of view. Mm-hmm. There, is the, there is the interpretation yes, of the interpretation One is world. wrong and one is right. Oh, very good. That's the way art is, of course. Because <laughs> when you're wrong, you're right. When you belong, you're right. When you belong. Okay, fair enough. We've all learned a lesson there. So uh, moving on from there to... Uh, Let's flip the record. Oh, we. Uh, so Within You, Without You is is the first song on the next side. Yeah. Oh, very good. The the album has been flipped. Within You, Without You, George Harrison. Yeah. So Boy, you this think is this George Harrison. Yeah, very this much This is so. really George Harrison. Mm-hmm. Uh, this song feels like they had it from Revolver and just put it on this album. Like, this feels like this one doesn't necessarily fit on this album. Okay. It's definitely a George. Yeah. And, and I like to hear from George, and good for George. Yeah. But I, you could slip this one on Revolver real easy peasy, and it would fit in perfectly with mm,
1: that. Yeah, probably. And I think George at this time was very disenchanted with, with the Beatles, Uh, He did another song at this time, which we'll talk about later on when we do Yellow Submarine, called Only a Northern Song, which wasn't included on the album. And And that song is a very disenchanted song.
0: Yeah, this is a you don't get it. Man. And this
1: song is a yeah. This song is
0: you squares. You squares don't get it.
1: <laughs> well, everyone, I think. I don't think he's just pointing at squares. I think he's pointing at everyone, not just squares. I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's directed at the hip people and the square people. So, I think.
0: are you saying he came back from India before this? Mm-hmm. When he was just there. Yeah, that's the thing. You take a trip. Yeah, and you learn it all, and then you come here and go, <laughs> "What's wrong with all of you that you don't get this simple thing that I learned from being in a different environment?" Yeah, and. Uh, yeah. You know, again, it's a, it's a, it's a fine song. It's fine. Like there's a little bit, uh, you know, where he's talking about people hiding themselves behind a wall of illusion. I couldn't help but think of the person who's just, uh, fixing a hole you know, and doing his wall of yeah, repairs. Yeah. And, uh, it's a, obviously wall of illusion is a different thing than that. But, you know, huh? He'd look down on the guy fixing a hole in the wall. You know, why are you alone out there? You should be out and uh, connecting with people and we're all one and we're all loving. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. You know what I think, um, and uh, and you know, uh, bless bless hippies. It's fine. It's fine. Nothing against hippies. I I like many a hippie, mm. but uh, I think uh, over time, uh, this kind of stuff I just heard a bit too much, and then it went nowhere when you saw their actual actions. Like if I saw someone who who said this kind of stuff and then lived this kind of stuff, and maybe George did, that's fine. Uh, then I'd have more tolerance for it. But me, just just personally, it's. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could, I guess, if we all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all. Yeah. Okay. Good. And that's me. So it was written written by him
1: on a harmonium. Do you know what a harmonium is? I do not. It's but a, I don't know
0: any of these instruments oh, okay. you're talking about. It's a it's a. What's it's, wrong with a guitar? I say.
1: <laughs> it's a pump organ. is basically oh, okay. what it is. So you play it with you pump with your legs and you play the organ. You make your own make your own uh, bellows. And so, yeah, he's playing it at his friend, Klaus Vermans, who we know because he designed the revolver sleeve. Okay. And was a friend from Hamburg, found, discovered kind of discovered the Beatles for, for the German friends. And, uh, yeah, I guess they are talking about the spiritual, you know, the kind of spiritual vacuum of modern life, and that's where the song kind of came from. And as usual, didn't have a title for a long time, but this is called India. Mm-hmm. This is George. George yeah. could not think of yeah. song titles. And, um, yeah, so he hired, um, brought in musicians from the Asian uh, Music Center and basically, you know, obviously it's all it's all Indian musicians for the longest time, but then he asked George to George Martin to provide a, a um, string string arrangement for it, which Martin kind of had trouble with because it wasn't really in his idiom. Yeah. And so he had to kind of listen to very carefully and, and kind of use these microtonal slides to would incorporate into his own string string arrangement. So it's very difficult, I'm but glad it's a very George, good.
0: I, f- I was feeling sorry for George not getting used in Paul's thing, so I'm glad that he got used in that. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And if you live on uh, anthology, there's an instrumental version of it without singing. It's actually quite of interesting to listen to because you can really hear the strings in that one and mm. they're really impressive yeah
0: I, I wish sorry i'm wishing like that uh jesus had shown up for this one yeah oh, and i would like to have uh, heard his perspective on this song I'm like <laughs> yeah
1: right <laughs> so then um and then the laughter was added by george oh okay from the album volume volume uh, six <laughs> applause and laughter <laughs> the tape the sound effect tape anyway all right so let's move on to uh when i'm 64 and it's a good little break the, having the laughter i was think it was actually a good idea yeah it's kind of it kind of takes the edge off that song, and it, it kind of guides you into the into the next songs in the album. It's almost like, okay, I'm done, into the next, you know, and now it's time for When I'm 64.
0: I was looking up uh, what the life expectancy was of someone living in the UK uh, at that point, and life expectancy for a lady was uh, 74, life expectancy for a man, 67. So mm. 64, you're almost knocking on, uh, on death's door. <laughs> so it's very different uh, age-wise. Yeah. You know, when you go like, it was weird that they've long since passed that age mm-hmm. now themselves for real. And you go like, Paul McCartney's still doing like hit songs. He just had a hit <laughs> song. He's still doing his thing. Yeah. All these people, you're uh, they were talking about earlier, the Rolling Stones, the Who. It's very different being 64 now than it was 64 in the 60s. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, his father, Jim, turned 64 in 1966, the year this was recorded. So, that was kind of the oh, okay. what made him think of it. Because actually, it was a very old song. It was a song that they used to play in the cavern. Uh, when the amplifiers, if the amps broke down, because there would be power outages all the time from the incredible amount of moisture in, in the cavern, it would cause, uh, uh, shorts. So, and then all the power would go out, so they would have nothing. And so sometimes he'd, they would just play this song as a kind of a joke song, you know, and then I guess when his dad turned 64, it kind of reminded him of it, and they thought it would be kind of fun to have this little bit of a pastiche, you know, to add some, more variation to the album, and it was the second song they recorded. So mm-hmm. after the the monumental or what, during the monumental Story of Fields recordings, they did this late yeah, little yeah, nice
0: simple yeah yeah. You know, it's a little song.
1: it's a little wafer thin mint yeah, it's and it's
0: a it works as a comedy song mm-hmm. as well sure you know and uh, yeah it's 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 really well paced and it, it's one of my favorites and
1: also it's at the time there was already like. Um, the new vaudeville band with winchester cathedral and the bonzos of course doing these musical hall you know songs from the 20s you know jolly d farm and stuff like that were very popular so it was kind of part of that scene totally as well totally fits into that yeah it totally does and then
0: i wonder yeah. if sing i wonder if paul sings this song still at concerts
1: yeah i don't know it would be weird wouldn't it,
0: would it? be wrong back when i was 64 yeah <laughs> okay
1: it doesn't doesn't scan any longer no and so yeah two two b flat clar- clarinets and one bass clarinet for the for the arrangement that George, that George Martin did, and then when it was mixed, it was mixed once, and then Paul McCartney said, "You know what? I don't like it. Scrap the mix. Let's do it again." And then they sped it way up, like it's really, it's like sped up, like a, like up a whole semitone, so it's super fast. Like George Martin, when he was listening to it, he goes, "Do we do we do this as fast?" <laughs> like he couldn't believe how how fast it sounded, and uh, yeah. So um, so there you go.
0: Yeah, it's very, very, yeah, it's a very, very sweet song. It's good. And again, you're right. It's a, it's a young person's perspective of what being old. I just
1: want to, I just want to say one thing about speeding up vocals. Please. Which I maybe should have brought up when we were talking about rain, which is really hard to speed up vocals because if your voice has any kind of quaver Mm -hmm. or you sing with a vibrato, it speeds up with the speeding up of your voice. So all these. Imperfections in your voice are magnified by the by the very speeding, so they had to be really spot on with their singing in order to do those sort of things. Well,
0: I know that uh, when you listen to our podcast on, say, an iPod or what mm-hmm. have you, you have the option to double the speed. Okay. So if you want to test that theory and listen to this <laughs> show like in just one hour, uh, hit that button and see if uh, see if Dave's correct. Go for And it, we Dave. do sound uh, sound a little crazy. <laughs> All right, uh, going on to "Lovely Rita," a song John Lennon apparently did not like, according to uh, according to Dave.
1: Yeah, because one of one of McCartney's novelistic songs that I think later Lennon later came to not like it. I think at this time he was perfectly fine with with paul songs i mean you know his artistic ideas changed over time so and in fact he probably would have recanted on his feelings and loved the song later on and
0: it's know? a, and, you know we've i've heard the song so much that i don't quite get the humor of it as much as i would if i was hearing it for the first time mm. but i think it's yeah it's a probably a pretty funny song you know this uh, really sweet love song but it's mm-hmm. about just a, a meter maid that you've just seen you well, know just someone someone uh, checking the meters but it started
1: as a because it actually happened to Paul McCartney, he did get a ticket from a lady. Her name was was Mita Davis. Okay. and so, and he was mad at her. So he started writing this song that was like a satire of authority. It was like a put down uh-huh. of this of this Rita meter maid. And he's like, you know what? That's not that's not nice. Let's not at all. Let's hey, make it interesting.
0: Hey, hey, rich guy, famous yeah, guy. Exactly. You know, you're putting down the working person who's just doing yeah. this, doing their job. So he he decided that she should be loved. Smart, so... smart mm-hmm. twist. Yeah. Yep.
1: And so yeah and I just like the fact that it, it just kind of speaks to the inclusiveness of the album once again that, that even a figure of authority like a, someone that people love to hate the, the meter maid Now, how does he Charlotte know her Gordon. name?
0: Did he just look at her name and remember? I guess because it and she, maybe she like, wore, a, wore a tag and, yeah. I guess the name the yeah. name Mita and her na- and she's a meter Mita I guess yeah. that would stick in your head for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Once again all these people who the songs have been named after I would love to know what their reactions were to the songs in later years <laughs> when they found when they found this out. Like, because again, she would not know this yeah. until much later, you know. And then, uh, and then, someone like mentions in an interview. Oh, yeah, that song was about you. Yeah, wow, that would be mind blowing. Mind blowing, yeah. Indeed. Yeah, I gotta go. Uh, I gotta go talk to uh, a couple other people on this album about things. So, so George did the piano solo
1: on this song, and once again, of course, it was speeded up, but it was also wobbled. So what what they did was J- Jeff Emmerich took a piece of sticky tape. And he stuck it onto the cap sound of the recorder, so when the tape was going through, it would slightly slow it down a little bit. Oh, okay. And so it made the made the piano wobble. And so then when it sped up, it gave it this kind of weird honky-tonk wobbly sound. Had a lot of fun with it. And then there's a line that uh, says, um, and the bag across her shoulder made it, made her look a little bit like, like a military, a military man. man. Then you hear jo- John, George, and Paul playing uh, comb and paper. Ha, okay. That's the sound there, that little zip, 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 zip. And then Lennon, when he sang, like they would he'd love to have echo in his headphones and so they would they had um a big echo chamber in um at Abbey Road and so the sound would feed into the echo chamber then back around into the tape delay to slightly separate the sound and then all that would be fed back into John Lennon's headphones so he would hear himself singing with echo and so, of course, he's doing the backing vocals for this song, and then when it got to the play-out part, he started doing the whole, <sighs> and doing all those noises and stuff like yeah. that, because he could hear the echo, and it was fun, and making all these fun noises and stuff like that, so that's why that's there.
0: Now, the, is that old uh, dirty old man type stuff. I don't know sound? what he was doing. I think That's what I always kind of assumed. Fun. Yeah. yeah,
1: probably. Probably. Okay. It's John. It's John. All right.
0: Let's wake Well, we're up.
1: getting near the end, so good morning. Good morning to you. Okay. Um, yeah, once again, John writing out of his environment, and I was talking about how they would I have TVs on all the time, and so he was sitting there trying to think of a song one day. The TV was on. Heard this Kellogg's Cornflake commercial, <laughs> and that gave him the idea for "Good Morning, Good Morning."
0: It reminds me a lot of "Good Day Sunshine," which is like, but it's sort of the anti "Good Day Sunshine." I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I what I like about this one, this really is the um, this really just it feels to me like the, like the the young young person who's just a little beyond their prime. Yeah. And uh, feeling it starts from really glum, but you're faking the good mornings. Yeah. To you actually get to the point where yeah things are all right. This isn't so bad. Yeah. You know, and there's a couple of songs on this album like that. They're that like you know it's it's getting better all the time. It's okay. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know it's a it's a maturing. But <laughs> I like the I like the older guy like doing a little bit of flirting, and then it's it's <laughs> kind of paying off. Like all right, all right, I still got it. I still got it. <laughs> things are fine. Everything's all right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: To me, this is one of the over-egged songs on the album. Like, I feel like this Okay, I've not heard that expression before. Well, I just feel like they... I think maybe John was feeling neglected. And he thought, you know what? Paul's getting all this attention in his songs. I want attention from my songs. So he... Um, what does over-egged mean? Oh, it just means too much was added to the, to the recipe. Oh, okay. So too many eggs went into this recipe. All right,
0: I was wondering if it was an I am the Man" situation. If you
1: listen to uh, Anthology, the second disc, there's a version of Good Morning, Good Morning without the horns on it. And I actually love that version. Okay. I've never been a, the biggest fan of this song, and but I love that version of it without because I feel like the horns make it even because it's a very weird kind of stumbly song. It has a really weird beat like you can actually like put like a time signature to I don't think because I think that they were really just winging it in the, in the in the studio and it's whatever was happening and they just kept slowing down and speeding up and that's what they wanted, you know and so then uh John decided, you know what this song really needs? It needs horns in it. so they hired this band called Sounds Incorporated. Who were well known? They did like this great version of uh, the Hall of the Mountain King, the Greek uh, classical piece. Mm-hmm. There, there's a that was kind of the thing. They would take classical things and kind of make them into a beat song. But they just were like a horn, and so they they were brought in and they did like this big you know brass thing that uh, George Martin arranged. But I really I don't like it. All I right. prefer without it. That's I think it's okay. down. And the other thing, Lennon wanted to end the song with animal noises. Now Jeff Emmerich says that he was instructed by Lennon. He wanted to have the sound of Animals escaping, and each successive animal should be able to eat or frighten the animal that came before it.
0: Now, thematically, how does that work with the song?
1: Well, because the song is kind of about, it's kind of like a, I think it's Good Morning, Good Morning. is kind of a put down of, of culture of that time, of, you know, like the, the world of, you know, this is sort of fake world that you live in, all the stuff that you do, and so I don't know if the animals are like just a sort of dog-eat-dog world that we live in, if that's okay. the idea of was that what he was going for? I don't really know.
0: Yeah, and I don't so, quite understand where that would go. Like, it feels like someone who's changing their perspective, and now they're...
1: No, no, no. That's not what he intended at all. Oh, what did he intend? He intended it as like like, it was like a, you know, You Idiots kind of a song.
0: Oh, well, screw that. <laughs> then so you know what, Dave? It's funny that you took it let that me way. Tell you, let me tell you this. I really dislike that song, then. <laughs> That is a cynical, cynical song. Yes, it was silly a very cynical song. song. It was a cynical.
1: song. That was Lennon. Lennon was a cynic, you know. For all his, behind
0: all his hippie facade, yeah. he was a very, very sharp, sour person. Well, I know. don't know. I mean, it feels like it feels like there's always the battle between the yeah. the, the cynic, you know, and the loving and the loving person. And I, and I guess true. I always like to think that the in the end, the uh, the uh, empathy, empathy wins. Yeah. And in this in that song, it feels like a guy. Who's you know is putting on the fake? He's he's faking it. But then the little things in life, you know, uh, turn him around by the end. But you're saying like, ah, but screw that guy is what you're saying is is the is the impression by the end. And he should get eaten by zoo animals.
1: I guess. Boo. So. I okay, know. I say boo I don't to know that. If that's what he meant. I don't think he meant the guy should get eaten by because it. it starts with a cock crowing. Yeah. Because it's morning though. And then it, it's <laughs> and then if it's a corn then it, hat, has a, then it has a cat mewing. Uh huh. A dog barking. Right. Things horses you'd have in a house. neighing. Yeah. Farm. Sheep bleeding, uh-huh. Lions roaring. Elephants trumpeting. Oh, is it? Okay. Well. Then it has the sound of a hunt. A cow mooing. Mew- <laughs> okay. And it finally ends with a hen clucking.
0: All right. Maybe you'd throw the and animals at the end. Then.
1: By the way, all these sounds were taken from the Abbey Road Effects Tape Collection, <laughs> Volume Thirty Five, <laughs> Animals. And bees—that's what it's called. Animals and bees. I hope you're and all, Yeah. Volume
0: fifty-seven. Mm-hmm. Fox hunt. Okay, everybody. I hope you're all writing this down. Yes,
1: please. There's a quiz at the end of the entire podcast.
0: All right, series. Okay, we want I you. We want you to assemble your own. Um, like, uh, give a give us a vo- verbal letters. Uh, you know, record a little MP3s, and please assemble them with these sound effects in in the letters to us. Emmerich says it wasn't an accident.
1: Martin thinks it probably was, but. The hen clucking, the final hen clucking matches the kind of matches the guitar that starts off the guitar that starts off Sergeant yeah. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band reprise or reprise. How you say that word? Yeah. So once again, those lucky little chances right. things that happen with editing, and so we go into Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band
0: reprise, which of course was great. Yep. It's great. It was makes you feel like the album's over. Makes you feel like we're done.
1: I think it was. But we're not. I think it was the last thing recorded by them as a band because Paul McCartney was leaving to go to America, and uh, that's when he went to uh, he visited uh, Brian Wilson, and played um, "She's Leaving Home" for him, and played. Uh, he got to play the celery stick for uh, vegetables, and then told Brian Wilson, "You better hurry up. We're going to catch up to you."
0: Now, what did what did uh, Brian think of uh, "She's Leaving Home"? Oh,
1: beautiful! He just cried it when he heard it. Oh, so nice! Cried both he, both he and his wife cried when, they, right. when he played it. So yeah, he was leaving. So um, so it was one of the last things to be. Reco- it was one of the last things to be recorded. The last thing to be recorded as a band, and so um, and it was actually suggested that they do this by Neil Aspinall. He felt that if you have a if you have a hello, then you should have like a goodbye. If you have a welcome song, you should have a goodbye song. So yeah. he thought you should have this little bit of a kind of a break between good morning, good morning, and or whatever the song was going to be, the, fi- the and and the final song. Where they knew what the final song was going to be as soon as they recorded it, they knew a you know they knew a day in life was going to be the final song.
0: Well, to me, this feels like the circus is leaving town. Okay, like you've started, they've all come in, now they're yeah. all packed up, and we'll get to the last we'll get to the last song, and mm. I, and and that to me is like the impact that the circus has had on town. But they've taken you on this. Taking on this journey, you know, if I if I'm gonna merge the two, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say the circus was doing a circus about life, and like about the journey through life and how we live our lives, and you know all these different acts explaining it. And now they're packing up and thank you and goodbye. Yep.
1: Yeah, so it's done. The song was completely done in one eleven an hour eleven hour session. They just recorded. They didn't do any bumping or anything. They just recorded four tracks. Yeah. Played it like a rock band, and they actually recorded it in Studio One, which is the huge orchestral studio. At Abbey Road, they couldn't get into Studio Two, so they had to do this. Tight, Someone else was in there. Yeah, they had to do this tight dynamic. You you know, a song for this tight little unit in the biggest oh, studio. I would the. love
0: to again know all the bands that bumped the Beatles.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's a busy studio. It could have been, you know, a bagpiper. You don't know, like it just. And it feels like this was a
0: very com- comfortable kind of thing uh, for them to do. Like, if you look at uh, recordings of them performing live at Blackpool, they love doing the fake kind of smarmy you know, uh emp- uh type thing, you know, mm. lovely to be here, you're all here, you know, you're yeah. the most beautiful audience we've ever seen. They love all that nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's all thrown in here. Sure. You know, we'd love to take you home with us. <laughs> you know, there we go, and we're back. It's true. Yeah. It's good. It's really great. Okay, well, let's move on from that to the greatest song on the album. All right, interesting perspective. Tell me why, sir oh, it's just such a fantastic song. Well, it's fantastic point, in every way. point made <laughs>
1: it's a, I mean, how can you deny it's the most fantastic song? So
0: I do not deny. So, I would just like explanation why.
1: And what I think is interesting about the song to me is that it was, uh, you know, recorded like a couple days after Sgt. Pepper, or after Penny Lane and, and Strawberry Fields Forever were taken off the album. And they're like, okay, start again. And then Lennon, you know, sits down and just writes this brilliant song. and this, It's a very mature song. Very mature, but it still it still has that, you know, still has that kind of LSD perception oh, element to it, you yeah. know, of, of um, you know, perception and re- and reality, reality in quotes, obviously, that we've you know seen in songs like Rain Anderberg, and Your Bird Can Sing and blah blah blah. So you know, it's got all that element to it, and I like Ian McDonald says, I like what he says. He says, he says it's about disenchantment with the limits of mundane perception. So the idea that you know. The, the idea and I, which i don't totally agree with but the idea that acid opens your eyes to a broader mm-hmm. view of the world and the universe and how it works and everything and and just the fact that lennon crafted this song out of what he was reading in the newspaper two of the stories in it come from the same edition i think of the daily mail or something mm-hmm. that he read you know one page has this story about tara brown who was a friend of the beatles and many other people he was a uh, heir to the guinness fortune and he was he was a friend, of the, like I say, he was a friend of the band, he was a scenester, he was a user, a user of drugs, and obviously Lennon thought he was probably tripping, but he drove his car through a red light and directly into a van mm. and killed himself. <clears throat> and so, so um, that, the first scene, you know, he's describing that scene, but it's interesting, is he looks at it from the point of view of the spectators. Mm-hmm. So it's this detached view, this very impersonal, detached view of what might have been an emotional thing for him, being a friend of of him. He doesn't have an emotional connection to it. He looks at it from this spectator point of view. And then the second verse is him at the premiere of the film, How I Won the War. Uh, once again, it's viewed from a distance. You know, it's viewed by indifferent spectators are watching this spectacle of, of tragedy, you know. And so, you know, and, they, and he's not even interested in it because he's read the book. So it's this alienated effect of media as well, right? You know, and so then the third verse... Uh, about the four thousand holes in Blackburn was from a real article in the in the newspaper, is saying there's four thousand holes in the roads of Blackburn, Lancashire, and according to a council survey, you know according to a council survey, and then it said something that's that's thirty six and a half holes per person in Lancashire or something like that, and so Lennon took that thing and which he thought was so hilarious, but he gives it this surreal element of how many holes can fill the airport house so how many how much emptiness can fill a space, right? So what you have there is the emptiness of facts and the and trivialities that fill our lives. And so, yeah, and I think it was, so the newspaper was published on January 17th. The song was recorded on January 19th. So it shows how quickly he took that information and turned it around into the song. Right. You know, that quickly. So, and then in the song itself, all that is inverted by the, I'd love to turn you on part of it, right? So you have, So you have that element, and then you have this dreamy, I'd love to turn you on, that leads into this, strange sort of awakening. The first awakening is Broken, though, by by Paul's song, which at the time was a separate song. They didn't...
0: Oh, is that right? Okay. Th-
1: it was a separate song because Paul was writing a song about growing up as a child going to school, and that was a song about getting out of bed to go to school. So since the childhood thing was thrown out, they incorporated it into A Day in the Life, and they put made that into the center part of it. And so when they recorded the song, they, they knew there was going to be 24 bars of space between... When John finished his part, to when John, when Paul started, so they had Mel Evans, their road their road manager, Mel Evans, call out the bars, that count out the bars and and call them out. So if you listen on, on the mono version, it's really clear. You can hear someone counting one, two as the as the orchestral build up starts, and they they soaked as they as a joke they just soaked his vocals in this crazy echo until it sounds like he's in the bottom of a giant cave. But um, and so he counted out the twenty four bars. Then they rang the alarm. To indicate where the next section starts okay. and then they count of course paul's part wasn't put in yet so then they carried on and then they finished with john's part and then they counted out another 24 bars for the for the end of the song because they weren't quite sure what they were going to do there yet so it was either intended or absolute fluke that an alarm starts with starts paul's part of the song because it wasn't intended to go there at the time so the alarm went off and then they start with paul's part so paul's once again date you know the day-to-day grind the date you know your daily grind of life and
0: which we've covered in Good Morning
1: already. We covered Good Morning, and so now it's so now it's about this kind of busy humdrum. The but the vacancy of life. There's nothing really important about it, and before you escape into dreams, and then it becomes that dream section again. If I'd love to turn you on, mm-hmm. and then you have the final glissando, which to me symbolizes some sort of actualization, whether into waking or yep. in, into dreaming or whatever. It, yep. You know, I'm not sure what Lena meant by it, but it's a sense of of a waking moment, right? And so, yeah,
0: my 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 take on my take on it is, <clears throat> the circus has left town. Okay, <laughs> you love the circus. I do, but I, I do think it's like the circus has left town. Mm-hmm. It's basically a psychedelic circus sure. has left town. Yeah. Now we're back to regular. The electric club. circus. Let's go with that. Famous Vancouver club. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. All right, we're gonna start listing Vancouver clubs. Um. So, uh, the circus has left town. Now, what's the effect on, on people? Like, because you've got the fight. In the actual album, between the mundane and the and the awakening, you know, the George. Listen, if you'd only wake up, yeah. Once again, you, yeah, you Square, yeah. You'd see all these connections and what have you. Mm-hmm. So now the circus that has told you all this stuff has left, and we're we're into our normal life. You're reading the paper, and you've got that distance to tragedy. You've got you don't feel anything. You don't feel the connection. But the circus, which has left town, has had an effect on you. And at the end of each of these verses, it it. You go into the trip, and you feel, and it's almost like a telescope that's going from focus that's way too, uh, way too far back, where you're not feeling anything too incredibly close, and you're, and you, you know, you're, you're seeing the extreme, extreme close-ups in the connection. And by the end of the song, it feels like no, you're completely awakened. Like you can't go back to the mundane at this point. You've tried. You've tried to get up, get out of bed. I'm fine. Here we go. Yeah. And uh, gonna do the normal things, and nobody. You've been affected by this album. Here we go, and we're and we're fully in, and uh, and you've woken up in the uh, in into this new world. Um, the circus has done its job, <laughs> and not in a creepy Ray Bradbury way, but in a, in a good way. Well, there you go. So it was probably. What do you think, folks?
1: It was probably Paul McCartney's idea to to do like the orchestral freak out, mm-hmm. and you know to have this sort of happening, and it was a happening. They had um, he wanted to have like a full orchestra, ninety seven people, right. George Martin being sane, chopped that down to 40. But, um, but yeah, so it wasn't happening. They had friends there. They had Mick Jagger was there, Marion um Donovan, like all kinds of friends. Mike Nesmith from the Monkees, they happened to be in town. He was there. Um, They're all there for this big thing and people were dressed in costumes and the orchestra was there in full, in full um, you know, their full evening dress. And but they were made to wear like red noses and and have you know uh, bald head wigs and stuff right. like that you know just just to make it into a big carnival for them. All right, we're back to the
0: circus. Yeah, yeah. go ahead.
1: And so, uh, and so, yeah, it was the idea was so he he told like what he said to George Martin is what we want to have happen is is uh, they the orchestra starts the, at the quietly mm-hmm. at their lowest note and then gets louder and ends at their highest note. Yeah, and then we'll just let them like do that. And then George is like, well, you can't do that because. You know, no one knows what's going on, and you have to, like, organize randomness, right? Didn't we learn that from the Calliope thing? Yep. And so, he actually scored it, and but he had to give very careful instructions. These are classical players. These are people who are trained to listen to each other and to do what each other's doing, to be in harmony together. And so, what he had to tell them was, okay, this is slightly Mm -hmm. different. I want you to, you know, start at your lowest note. I want you to, you know, and he's going to show them when, you know about this point in the song. You should be around here. Right. And at this point, you should be around here. And then I want you to end on the whatever note in the E major triad is the h- nearest, the highest note that you can play. And so on that in- you know, particular instrument. Because what he didn't want is like a chaotic tone cluster to start at the end of the song. And then they just would sound like the Portsmouth Sinfonia or something like that. You know, you don't know. Do you know who no, the Portsmouth is? No. Nope. Oh,
0: OK. The Portsmouth Sinfonia. Dave, if I stopped you and everything that I didn't know reference-wise. <laughs> OK. Uh, we would have a very long show the
1: Port sinfonia was like a group of like amateur musicians who didn't know how to they didn't know how to play their instruments mm-hmm. and they were brought together to play classical music it was kind of a, a oh, okay. it was kind of an experiment in in pain um, but they did do an album if you want to look for it
0: now let me just ask you this do you think that like to me what it reads as and when you're going the full album it reads like you start off with Sergeant Pepper's, yeah, which uh, which is you know this um, it's very you know again a huge sound, beautiful huge sound, but it's very tight and organized. And this is the show it's going to be. Yeah. And by the end, it's I hate using this expression. It's that on acid, man. Yeah. But it's that warped, and you know again to me the effect of the circus has come to town. But this is. This is what the circus has done. And it's the bizarro version of the what you heard at the top. It's still that same huge sound, but it's melty and going into each other. And it's not as crisp. And, and then it, it just goes into almost madness. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, um, you know, if you want a song that was uh, recorded uh, on, I guess, well, January 17th. And then, uh, you know, Sergeant Pepper, the... Wasn't done until February 2nd and wasn't even thought of as a concept till later than that. I don't know. I just – I have trouble. Like, if you want to think of it that way, that's fine. Like, Mm. if that's what it means to you. I just
0: picture the whole band melting during this, you (laughs) know, and just all melting into a glob, you know, by the end of it. Like it's all I, crisp and everyone's in I their guess nice that, outfits and distinct Is that colors. what the
1: piano chord is though? To be in the piano chord is that moment of like a moment of truth. That's in the your, song. that's your,
0: okay. Well, that's the thing. It's like you're going through your, you're going through your acidity, you know, the, the whole, if you're in, if you're in Willy Wonka's world, you're going through mm-hmm. the tunnel, you know, and then you get to the other side and then, yeah, you have your, the eye opens. Yeah. That's the image I get at the end with that final piano thing is like blink, open, and we're done. The, the technical part was, um,
1: when they were going to do the orchestral up is they actually needed eight tracks and abbey road did not have an eight track recorder it didn't actually have an eight track recorder until 1968 they had them in a, the states but they did not have them in, in abbey road because of import restrictions and the high cost of bringing one in they just were too cheap so what so george martin had to go to ken townsend his faithful uh, studio tech and say you know what i need i need a way for us to slave uh, a, two four tracks together so that they run in in, you know in synchronicity. Synchronicity? That's not a word for that, though.
0: Okay, that's just, just made a
1: made-up word by by Young or something like that.
0: Well, it, it was, they run, uh, It they, was also a. So they fairly, it, was a, it was a fairly good P, a police album, if I'm not wrong. Am I right, everybody? It's pretty good. They were synchronized. Is the word we wanted to use. So then, would you quit that computer? Um, and so then, um, uh,
1: what they did was uh, so T- Townsend had to think about this, obviously, for half an hour, probably. He's a brilliant guy. So what he did was. I don't understand how it works. I'm only going to explain to you what he did. Please do. So what he did, so he had one. He had one, they had the one that had two tracks on it, which was all the stuff they'd done that far. On the third track, he put a tone, a a fifty cycle tone that ran on that track on one machine, and so that fifty cycle tone controlled the caps down on the other machine, so they would run together. Okay. So they marked two two tapes, so they would know exactly where they're going to start. They started the machines, and when the machine started. There's a slight lag, so they weren't in perfect sync. You know, they weren't perfectly synchronized, but close enough. And so then, so that machine running that tone ran the other machine. Started the other machine at the same time, and so they are able to do the orchestral overdub onto that because they did it four times. They didn't do, just do it once. The orchestra did it four different times All right. to get that huge mass. So, so what Paul wanted with eight, with with uh, ninety seven, he actually got one hundred and sixty. So. <laughs> people playing that part you know it is an amazing way to
0: end the album like it's it is amazing
1: but what's funny is that because they had all their friends and stuff there yeah their first thought was to end it on an on a sung note so they had everyone gather on the mics and go hum and it sounded just as lame as me doing that um didn't sound good at all so a little while later they came they came they decided you know what we should do is pianos so they, they had three pianos set up in the studio and john paul george and no john Paul, Ringo, and Mel Evans all stood at the three different pianos and played uh, w- this one note, which was an E major. They had, it took them nine takes to get it, so they all hit it together <laughs> at the same time. And then they overdubbed that three more times, and George George Martin added a harmonium to it as well just to kind of fill it out. And while they were recording it, Jeff Emmerich sat at, his, at the console, and he slowly lip- raised the volume as it went up, so they could keep capturing the sound of the, yeah. as it kept going up, just to the point you know, where you're like hearing the air conditioning and the studio and everything <laughs> else, right? You can actually, if you listen carefully, you can hear a paper rustle and a chair squeak as it, as it goes. Because <laughs> nice. they, they couldn't hear it then, cause they're, but on CD you can hear it. They couldn't hear it at the time, but yeah. So yeah. So then, is that the end of the album? No. I don't know. Because, I, I see, I have the record. I have the CDs. Okay. And I don't know, you downloaded it, right? Yes, I did. So when it comes to the end of the song, is there like stuff at the very end of it? Does it have like a pause and then it...
0: Oh, I'm not really sure. I think I, I listened to it a track at a time uh, to okay. write down stuff as, as it went. Okay,
1: so... Well, on what the, happens at the very on end? On the original record, uh, John Lennon's request, they, they included like, I think it's like 18 kilohertz frequency. It's like a, only dogs can hear it. So there's this weird silence. Yeah. I guess to make your dog go, huh? And then, then it has this weird run out track. So if you had a player that wasn't an automatic which didn't have an automatic return your needle would get trapped in this groove and it's just this bunch of nonsense that they recorded has some backwards stuff and just them and it sounds like it kind of sounds like they're saying like i don't know something about each other i can't remember exactly what they said it's just this is weird kind of this nonsense put together apparently if you play it backwards it says i will f you like superman but you know, obviously they didn't realize that when they did it you know because you you know they just put nonsense together and yeah. edit it together
0: and that's not something superman would do
1: anyway yeah it would hurt and so um
0: except for superman 2 i stand corrected he did in superman 2 Cool. so
1: um to. yeah so if you had a record that have, it would just get trapped in this runout groove and just keep circling and circling <laughs> until you got up and went and took it off interesting and that was how it ended. but that was all done in the cutting in the cutting phase it wasn't done uh cuz you know it's it has to be cut into the album when the guy is cutting the actual the stuff the other thing is is uh, George Martin wanted no spaces no rills are called rills mm. between the songs so that's there is no spaces all the songs ran together neat yeah
0: and that brings us to the end that's the very end all right uh, is there anything that you would like to uh, say to our uh, listeners before we wrap up Um. No. Oh, very good. Besides,
1: thanks for listening to the show.
0: Okay. We'd appreciate it if, uh, you know, we we love hearing from you. Anytime we get an email from you is always a real treat. Uh, You can reach us at uh, sneakydragon.com is our website. We'll uh, take messages from you on our message board there. Uh, you can also go to our Facebook page, obviously, uh, uh, which is uh, completely Beatles. Mm-hmm. We've
1: had some nice emails lately as well, so thanks everyone who's yeah. Emailed it's always us.
0: like a real treat. And if uh, if totally. you want to go and write a review on uh, iTunes, that helps us to uh, bump us up, sort of, in the ratings. I, and we don't see. know what it does. We don't you know, know how it does, but apparently we're being bumped up every so often. Yeah. There was some French program we wanted to beat, and we beat it. We beat that. So French we program. don't. Yeah. Those. Yeah, we're done. They uh, they probably don't even listen to the show or can't <laughs> understand it. So, but you know, for some reason we can. Consider that a small victory in mm-hmm. our petty, petty way. Sure. Of course but, we do. Uh, But yeah, just uh, just on the whole, we really appreciate hearing from you. And we appreciate you spending your time with us and listening to this whole show. I know your ears are aching right now, but yeah, hopefully they're sorry. full of some sort of interesting trivia. Uh, we enjoy doing this. We, enjoy, we hope you do, too. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. If you want to listen to us uh, talk about other nonsense, uh, Sneaky Dragon is our other podcast. And we are done. So, have yourself, uh, go have a cup of tea. Have a cup of tea, and we'll see you next time
1: for a magical mystery tour. Oh, completely
0: Beatles. Bye.